0: He went through all of these extremes, including building a custom torture chamber for Alex. And then he's with the real woman who's responsible and he's not gonna do anything.
1: Welcome to the Art of story where we take a movie do a deep dive breakdown where we look at story structure character and theme my name is adam argo and today i'm joined by kate cannon she's an actor and producer um really really talented person uh kate why don't you tell the, the audience about yourself
0: hi um thank you adam for having me on today i'm, I'm really excited to dive into this really complex and and deep film um I'm an actor based, um, I was originally based in Tucson, Arizona, but I recently moved back to LA. Um, I lived out here a few few years ago, um, but now I'm coming back out and trying again, and um, yeah, I'm just uh, I'm excited to be here and talk more about this film. Um, I work a lot with YouTuber uh, Darius Britt on uh, the D for Darius channel, so your audience you. may have seen me there.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. That's cool. How long have you been working with uh, Darius?
0: A long time. Um, since since we both were in college. So um, it's been it's been a fair bit.
1: Um, oh, cool. So you're like friends all the way back to in college?
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, Darius, he's somebody I've been following for years. I, I learned a ton about production. And uh, I love that he has such an like indie spirit. Like, really great practical stuff. So I strongly recommend him. So real quick, I'm going to do a, a quick announcement. My book, Story by Numbers, is officially out. You can go to the website Cinematicore.com where you can order the book. We also have the story by numbers workbook, which is kind of a companion book. It takes all the different charts and diagrams and then breaks it down into kind of a journal. So as you go to developing the stories, you can start with the story structure, make notes. And like, this is where the midpoint is, this is where the climax is. Um, And then along with that, we're also going to be doing a a story structure intensive where um, I'm going to uh, be taking a kernel of an underdeveloped idea, just, just an, a general concept. And in two hours, we're going to take that idea, develop a character, a plot, a story structure, and bring it all the way to an outline. So after that, we can take it to a script. And the idea is that we're going to be using the elements of story by numbers to um, a, as a development process. It's, it's like if you're sitting in a room and you break a story with a story team, it's the same method I would use in a studio um, just intensified and, and, uh, concentrated into two hours. It's a fun process. It'll be fun. So sign up at cinematicor.com and uh, enroll there. Uh, we, we have a listener question. Uh, do you mind reading that?
0: Great. Um, so the listener question, um, for this week is I always find a subplot kind of confusing about its function and relationship to the main plot. It presents on the plot point seven and thirteen on uh Adam's outline structure. So how different is it from plot point seven to plot point thirteen? Could you clarify it on your podcast with some examples of movies? Um fellow sleepless dreamer and is it Sridhar? I hope I'm saying the I believe name it's right. pronounced
1: Sridhar. Yeah. Yeah. Sridhar's great. He's uh he's sent some really good uh comments and questions. Uh, yeah. Great question. Really good question. So subplots, uh, what, what is a subplot and how do you approach it? Kate, for you, what, how do you determine like a subplot versus like normal plot points?
0: Um, it's something that I struggle with too. Um, I still consider myself a beginner in, in learning, um, at least from the writing perspective of story structure. Mm -hmm. But, um, I, I often think of the romantic subplots as being kind of an easier way to, kind of understand it the classic Mm. um uh whether it's a femme fatale storyline in a noir where she's the distraction um from the main goal or something like um in the dark Knight or the um batman begins with uh rachel is kind of a subplot Mm. to batman's main Mm. focus even though she's part of the core of it um at least that's my understanding of it. Um, I really want to hear Adam's <laughs> explanation. That's a
1: that's a good take. So what what makes a romantic like a romantic relationship or plot points? What makes that a subplot and not part of the main plot?
0: It's usually apart from the the main character's um, mm. goal, but it's still connected to the themes of the story. And the way I see subplots as they deepen it. And it usually involves other characters that are not the main protagonist or the antagonist, but are still important to the story overall.
1: That's really well said. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, so so uh, in story by numbers, I, I kind of define subplot or I do define subplot as a plot point that is not uh, directly connected with the protagonist solving the problem or uh, answering the dramatic question. So um, it's, you know, you know, if, you, if you're going to the store, your dramatic question is, is will you buy carrots? But you stop off and you pick up some stamps uh, and you going to get the stamps is, you don't need to get the stamps in order to buy the carrots. That's your subplot. It's not relevant necessarily to the overarching plot or the dramatic question. Um, um, but then again, you ask question like, it begs the question of why would you include that in a plot? If there's a story about someone going to buy carrots, why involve the story about the, you know, the stamps? And exactly like you said, it's subplot is a really great opportunity to develop character and show different dimensions of it. Uh, one of my favorite subplots is also a romantic uh, subplot line is in the movie Tootsie uh, where Michael Dorsey um, is uh Dressing, uh, disguising himself as a, a woman actor and uh, he becomes a soap opera uh, actor and uh, he's playing a soap opera character and nobody knows his, his uh, identity, his real identity is Michael Dorsey. He's famous for being a difficult actor. So no one wanted to work with him. So he changed his identity and disguised himself so that he could get work. Now, the interesting thing is, is that uh, along the way he uh, develops a, a relationship with one of his friends. Like he, he enters into a sexual relationship. They starts dating uh, one of his good friends. Who's also kind of a struggling actor uh, played by uh, Terry Gar, She's amazing. And the interesting thing is, you know, the plot is all about, will he get away with disguising his true identity um, and uh, become a successful actor? And that's, that's the plot. You don't need the story in there with him falling in love or, or dating Terry Gar. Um, it doesn't contribute to the story directly, but what it does is expose the dimension of Michael Dorsey uh, in his true identity. In his true identity, he, well, so as, uh, in his false identity, he is learning what it's like to navigate the complexities of being a woman in this environment, this very competitive, aggressive environment. And uh, he becomes very sympathetic and see things from that perspective. And then on the other side, when he's dating uh, Terry Garr, he uh, he's full of hypocrisy and contradiction. He's doing everything that he's becoming critical of. So it showed that kind of dimension where he really had to confront his own hypocrisy by realizing, oh, I'm treating her with the disrespect that I'm getting treated with at work. And, and it's great because you could have taken out the entire plot uh, sequence of him dating Terry Gar, him dating his friend, and it would still be a great movie. But adding that in there informed and contributed so much, not only to the complexity of the story, but also to the complexity and the hypocrisy of his character, and it revealed those different dimensions of his character. So it's a really good example. So subplots are plots that they're, they're plot points that usually occur in acts two and three. And, um, theoretically you could remove it and it wouldn't take away from the plot, the, the primary dramatic question, the spine of the story. Um, and the reason you want to use subplots is it can add complication and it adds dimension and depth to the characters. So keep that in mind when you're developing subplots. It's why you usually want, like, uh, in in the story structure in this, uh, the, uh, four act diagram, um, I put it in, um, the, the second, the kind of early on in sequence number three or yeah, sequence number three, and then also in sequence number five, um, it, it can happen at any point. You could have a subplot. Technically you could have a subplot at anywhere you want in the story, but the idea is that it's a, a series of problem solve, uh, or solving problems where, um, that don't have to do with that initial spine. Um, and that's why like in the 24 plot points, uh, diagram, I want to make sure that it's kind of taking up a place and we, sh- we keep it as, as a prototype. But again, keep in mind, these are modular, so you can adjust it to whatever dynamics that you need that, that serve your story. That's the most important thing is keep in mind that these are principles. It's kind of like you can have a big pile of plot points and pick out the ones that serve your story and then leave the rest of them off. Subplot is definitely one you want to be very careful with. Um, because a lot of times, if the subplot has higher stakes than the primary spine, it hijacks your entire story. So, something to keep in mind. I hope that kind of gives a good introduction and talks about some of the dimensions. But again, subplot—it could be a book of its own, and uh, we'll we'll keep discussing it in further thing, further uh, episodes. So today, I'm very excited. We're going to be doing this uh, movie. This is actually uh, Kate's suggestion. Uh, we were talking about how we were covering with several different uh, uh, Villeneuve movies. And it was actually her idea to say, what if, what if you did a series on Villeneuve? And I love that idea because I've learned so much just looking at like how a director um, develops, grows, matures. And also we see a lot of themes and interesting um, uh, themes and preferences and biases that I, I think are really like showing themselves. But this is a really unique, sophisticated director who lots plays a lot with layers. Um so uh, once once she said once she suggested prisoners, I was like, oh okay, I haven't I haven't visited that movie in a few years, and I remember like really digging it. Like it gave me strong like David Fincher vibes, you know. Like uh, it definitely evoked feelings of like Zodiac, um, and then Seven, of course, um, and uh, and then a few other movies that, that we're going to talk about later that I think uh, played into kind of the development and the genre as well. You've got a story inside you. A screenplay no one has ever thought of. A novel you've been rolling around inside your coconut for years. Maybe you wrote a few pages and stalled out. Maybe you even wrote a whole draft but don't feel confident it's any good. Or maybe you've been writing draft after draft after draft and slamming into writer's blocks or dead ends or wandering into the weeds. Maybe you just have a few scenes centered around some dope high concept but you don't know how to develop a character. Much less construct a plot that would generate a character arc. Maybe all you have is some simmering spark of an idea. Just a simple desire to write a story. This book is for you. Story by Numbers is a step-by-step process. It gives you the tools to construct a plot that fleshes out your story with characters so real, so compelling, so multi-dimensional, you'll begin to wonder if you're possessed. Story by Numbers is composed of three parts. Part 1 gives you an overview of the four-act structure, 24 plot points, 8 sequences. Part 2 is a 35-question examination of your story that will guide you through developing and outlining your novel or screenplay into the four-act template. Part 3, well, that's just next-level dope shit. This isn't just another book on theory, Story by Numbers is a diagnostic toolkit for developing and fine-tuning your story. You'll also want to pick up the Story by Numbers Workbook. For each story you're writing, you'll need a journal to organize your ideas. The Story by Numbers Workbook is a companion notebook that walks you through the process as you outline your story and guide you through each phase of development, from constructing your protagonist's internal drive, to plotting conflicts that expose character, to composing scenes that drive compelling stories. By the time you've completed your story by numbers workbook, you'll be ready to finish your manuscript. Story by numbers, write more, better, faster, doper. Kate, do you want to give us a quick uh, breakdown of of prisoners?
0: Yeah. So on a Thanksgiving uh, day uh, afternoon, um, two daughters go, um, go missing, uh, of these two families and, and the story is about, um, let's see, I'm going to, I don't know why I just Keller, I'm going to say this part again, just cause I want to get the characters named, right. I always struggle with car- character names, uh, Keller Dover, Hugh Jackman's character, um, doing everything. I, I, I don't know why it. I hate
1: that name. Keller Dover. It's such Uh, a, it's such a difficult name to say. Keller Dover, Keller Dover. They both sound like, you know, last names. uh, Yeah, that's,
0: (laughs) I I think that's why when they're saying his name, it sounds more like a last name and um, getting into symbol, symbolism, there we go. Later, um, Keller, I guess means basement in in German. So we can talk about that. Oh,
1: I didn't know that.
0: I, yeah, I, I didn't know until I heard it in an interview, and I was like, oh, that's that's really interesting. So you have it here. When Keller Dover's daughter and her friend go missing, he takes matters into his own hands as the police pursue multiple leads, and the pressure mounts.
1: And then for director, we got Dennis, Denise Villeneuve, of course. Is it Denise or Denis Villeneuve?
0: I've heard Denny more. Um, yeah, which I think would be me much. too.
1: Yeah, I believe he's Quebecois. So it'd, it'd be more of the French ex, uh, pronunciation, Denis Villeneuve, which when I first heard, when I first saw his name, I was like, oh, Denis Villeneuve, you know, because I <laughs> yeah. I was like, ah, yeah, Villeneuve. Everyone's saying his name wrong, but that's because I'm not very good at French. Uh, and then the writer is Aaron, Aaron Gossakowski, right? He's, so he's the show creator uh, of uh, Raised by Wolves, which is really interesting. Uh, he wrote Contraband, uh, The Red Road. Uh, Papillon screenplay by, and then Raised by Wolves. Did you see Raised by Wolves, the series?
0: I haven't. I haven't, but now I, I want to. Um
1: It's, it's interesting. It's really complex. Like it's a, it's, he's definitely playing with a lot of the same themes that he's playing with in Prisoners, but a completely different approach to storyline. It's just like far future sci-fi interplanetary uh, space saga. Cool. It's, it's fun. There's some really cool stuff in there. I like it. Um, One thing that's, that's interesting is, so this script was on the 2009 blacklist uh, and the blacklist is kind of a, a a list of uh, aggregated kind of the best screenplays that lots of industry professionals uh, kind of aggregate over the year. And they tend to be kind of the ones that like agents start competing for and gets really good reputation. Um, And then now, and then that kind of evolved into the blacklist website where you can, Uh, submit your script and it'll be uh, voted on or read by uh, industry professionals. And if it, you know, if it gets good momentum, then uh, agents tend to take some interest and they tend to go into production. So, so this was one of those scripts that was kind of floating around. It was part of the blacklist. Lots of people read it. It, Everybody dug it. uh, And then it got picked up and uh, just, uh, what was it? I guess about three years later, four years later, uh, Villeneuve was attached and went into production. Um, and it, the thing that was really interesting is, uh, Gus Sikowski said that he had, uh, written it as kind of in, an inspiration for the telltale heart. So strong Edgar Allan Poe, uh, motive or, er, uh, themes that were connected to it. Uh, cool. And then the cast. Oh, what'd you think of the cast?
0: I love the cast. I'm, I'm a huge Viola Davis fan and, and yeah. Hugh Jackman. Um, I think Hugh Jackman yeah. I think he gets enough credit now, but he's, he's very versatile as an actor. His background is in musical theater, which mm-hmm. seems like it wouldn't fit, but then I love him as Wolverine too. Um, but I, yeah. I think he's fantastic. Melissa Leo's incredible. And then Jake Gyllenhaal is, is always great. I um, yeah. really like him in this role and, and Terrence Howard. I really like Terrence Howard too.
1: Yeah. I was going to say like Terrence Howard is somebody that he's, his performances are so intense. There's so much, where he throws himself into it. And he's, I, I'm a huge Terrence Howard fan. And I think he's amazing. Do you ever see that movie, uh, hustle and flow?
0: You know, I ha- still haven't seen the whole thing and I really want to cause I, I am a fan. Oh, of, it's okay. so
1: it's brutal. I love hustle and flow. It has, it's, it's a, such a great story. And Terrence Howard is like, it's a vehicle for him and he's amazing. And he's so charismatic and complex and both vulnerable, but tough and, Boundaries, but like he he just he really speaks to the camera every time he's on screen. I just feel so much depth and vulnerability from him, and also like this edge he always brings this really interesting edge to it, um yeah yeah, really good actor uh yeah, and then just fantastic cast like i you know this is uh Jake Gyllenhaal and Hugh Jackman like as uh well, we'll get into that in just a little bit, but yeah, really good. Uh, how about, um, budget and release?
0: Um, let's see. It's estimated it was 46 million and, uh, should I go with worldwide gross, uh, was 122 million.
1: Cool. Okay. So 46 million, 122 million and then domestic, what was it about? 60, 61 61 million?
0: million.
1: Yeah. So, wow. So almost doubled by going international. So that's a really, that's a really big success. Domestic, it made all its money back. And then when it went worldwide, that's, that's, you know, covers the marketing and then um, the budget and then opening weekend, it looked like what, 20 million. So -hmm. it's about Mm -hmm. half of a, half of just the production budget that they made back, which is pretty good. It's not huge. Like usually within the first like opening box office, the first weekend, you know, a, a lot of studios will, when they release a movie, they expect to make most of the money back the first weekend. And then after that, it kind of goes down. And then there's other movies that, you know, they release very quietly and then build momentum. So it's, uh, but this, this would be, this is definitely a very successful movie. Um, just domestic alone. They made all their money back, which means everything after that gross uh, worldwide gross is, uh, is cake. Yeah. So on, on Rotten Tomatoes, it looks like it got 81%. um from the critics and then 87% from the audience. Interesting. So the audience liked this a lot more than the critics, which is really interesting. Why do you think that was?
0: Um, I, I think just in terms of an audience's response, it's very engaging this film. Um, and yeah. you want to, it hooks you and you're, you're waiting till, till the end, um, especially one of those moments in, in the climax, you, you can't even breathe fully, um, or I couldn't when, when it's the car it's drive
1: happening.
0: home, the, the drive to the hospital, yeah. that, that part yeah. specifically, yeah. um, was brilliant. Um,
1: yeah, that one, oh man, that devastated me. I was so like, oh, just get her to the hospital. she has got poison in her veins.
0: he <laughs> he's been, grazed he's got blood in his eyes visions going and you're like don't crash the car no yeah Um,
1: yeah exactly yeah with this movie it's so um so it's interesting that there's kind of that discrepancy between the critics and the audience and it to me it makes a lot of sense and once we start diving into structure I I think it actually kind of reveals why there might be that slight discrepancy still, it's still very highly, like the audience really liked it. 87 is a very high score. And then I would have thought there were more critics that, that liked it. Um, So it's, you know, and again, we're looking at Rotten Tomatoes and Rotten Tomatoes has kind of like a, it's, it's a basic kind of binary, like yes or no, like it or not like it. And it aggregates that and then average it based on percentage which when it comes to, you know, evaluating the quality of a piece of art, it's a little arbitrary. It's, it's just testing. Like it's only, you know, flavor testing for popularity, not really for the actual quality of the art, but it is worth like uh, looking at the indicating factors on whether, you know, it it has that kind of viability or a story that resonates. Um, okay, great. That was, that was really interesting breakdown. Um, I'm especially interested in the fact that, like, uh, the the Gusakowski and um, Villeneuve developed this, like, it was a script that already existed, uh, and then Villeneuve came in and, and worked on it as well. But they, like, often Villeneuve will come in, also be credited as a, as a co-writer, but in this case, it is uh, completely Gusakowski, is that right?
0: Yes, I, I think so. At least that's what's, um, listed on IMDb. And I did hear that he came in and influenced, um, certain elements, but it looks like at least going off of IMDb. Um, and I just don't remember from the credits. Um, yeah, but I'm, I, yeah. I according to the credits,
1: better. it was, it was just, uh, has has sole, uh, screenwriting credit, which is great. Um, and the thing I love about Villeneuve is he is a very much, Well, I would say he's a very complete director. Like some directors come in and they're like, well, this is a script. I'm shooting the script exactly as it is. And then other directors come in and say, I'm going to smuggle in all of my themes into the script. You know, Kubrick was famous for doing that, you know, with uh, taking like, you know, The Shining and saying, that's fine, Stephen King. This is your story. I'm going to tell my version of it. Um, But Villeneuve is somebody who, who brings a lot. I think he has a lot of respect for source material, and a lot of respect for existing story and then always manages to plus it he's it's one of the reasons why he's one of my favorite directors is he 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 has such a deep respect for the material and then brings lots of depth and lots of his themes and lots of his biases that add a lot of like flavor and taste and really effectively plays with tension and drawing our our attention on the on the drama uh, so really well connected. Okay, so now that we've got the kind of overview for prisoners, we're going to dive into story structure. Uh, now, story structure, we often, uh, we, we're we using this uh, four-act structure diagram as kind of a prototype to compare it to. Now, this is not a ruler to measure or a, to measure like a standard of quality. This is uh, a general idea of a prototype that we can Um, say, okay, this is, these are some of the hallmarks that most films use and we'll see how they navigate it, how they break the system, break the structure, and what's uh, where they stick to it in order to, you know, um, play with our expectations as audiences. We all have kind of, if we're going to sit down for two hours, uh, we usually have kind of an expectation of where certain things will happen. And if they don't happen within those moments, it tends to create this kind of uh, disengagement, which is which is interesting. And every audience is different, you know. Uh, some audiences have a lot of patience and will, you know, explore. They're, they don't need those kind of major landmarks, and stories can be paced out differently. Um, and I think it really comes down to the the individual story, what the needs of the story are, and what the relationship of the artist to their audience is in particular, you know, studios and the audiences that they're trying to attract. Uh, so in this case, uh, we want to start with, this is a two and a half hour movie. So this is a, a deep, intense, this, this is, you're sitting down for a good two and a half hours. And it's interesting because it, it goes very quickly. Um, it, this, the scenes are very short. Generally speaking, there are very few drawn out scenes but the, there are some scenes that really felt long to me, and uh, or uh, you know we're gonna look at the structure and see how they paced it out to to see why that might be. Um, and before we dive into structure, I kind of want to get my criticism out at the beginning because a lot of my criticism comes from uh, comes from trying to deconstruct it. When I first watched the movie, I was on the edge of my seat. Uh, it just felt like I was just getting emotionally pummeled scene after scene after scene. Cause you're super worried about those two girls that are missing. You're devastated by how this is affecting their family. And you just it, like air, and you're, you, you're both like angered and terrified. And you're also like filled with all the emotional guilt and qualms. And like, would I do this? Would I go to these extremes? But the, the, going back and reviewing it specifically for understanding the way they structured it. This is when my brain kicked in over the emotion. And I started looking at like, Ooh, I didn't like that. Oh, wait, this doesn't quite work for me. Oh, this bugs me. And it's really interesting. I I became more critical of it. Um, I started kind of getting to a point where I was like, I'm not sure I like this movie very much because the way it was structured, And slowly I became like, I had this kind of arc in in just analyzing it. And now I've come to a point where I think the difference is, is I think I, I respect what the structure is and how they execute it. I especially respect the way it's executed, but the actual structure of the story uh, comes from a point where it's not, I don't have problems. Like it doesn't suffer from plot, uh, like plot holes. It's not, it doesn't have plot holes What it has is moments where it's making a point that I, in my gut, feel like, oh, I don't agree with that. Which is honestly, that's what great film does. It it challenges you to like, well, you don't want to see this about the world, but this is how the world operates. So, and it was, and I'm I'm only saying that usually we save the criticism for the end. But as I started to deconstruct the, the structure, this kept coming up for me, like what the story is proving and, and the claims that it's making. Um, what was your, what, what's kind of your emotional impact? What was your experience? Like the first time you watched it and how do you feel about it now, Kate?
0: Uh, the first time was, was rough where um, it's funny. I kind of had the reverse experience. The first time watching it, I was really excited to see all of these actors together um, yeah. kind of facing off um so that was my perspective going into it and then um the intensity of uh, the brutality throughout um i i always struggle with that i struggled with that with Sicario as well which is also yeah. a brilliant film um yeah. Yeah. but at times we we need to look at those elements and um we need to deal with a world that's like this and and have that conversation um and and talk about these themes um, i I feel like Denny did not hold back at all in, in the brutality of um, what happens to Alex Jones um, and, mm-hmm. and, and just the imagery, especially in, um, in Bob Taylor's house with the the snakes. I, I hate snakes. So that was really <laughs> um, you have the pig's head in the sink and then the bloody clothes of the kids with snakes was just so, um, Disturbing, not only because I have a snake phobia, but um, just those things together—the innocence of of kids' clothing with the blood and snakes—and kind of a really um, vile. And religion is the second time watching it, seeing how much religion pay, plays into it. Um, mm-hmm. The first time I was more focused on the overall story and what's going to happen to the girls and mm-hmm. are they going to find them? You know, I was more and who who is involved because you're getting thrown around. Once you know all the spoilers, it's It's easy to, when you watch it a second time, focus more on, um, those key elements and see some of the, the imagery and, uh, Villeneuve is so good at, at layering and so much symbolism that it almost takes a few times to really take it in. Um, and, and some of those things you won't notice, but when you're watching the film ever, um, like Jake Gyllenhaal, I was watching an interview, um, With him talking about this film and the tattoos um part of the reason why his his um shirt is so buttoned up is um they made the decision that part of the backstory is he's covering the tattoos he's ashamed Mm. of his past and and that's really interesting (laughs) and it's one of those things that like as an actor super important when you're building the character and it's something they collaborated on together um Mm -hmm. And, and you, you get those things subtly, but it's not something, obviously, when watching it, I can I can point to and be like, oh, he's ashamed of his past. I might infer that, but it gives detail to that character and makes it different from other characters that Jake Gyllenhaal's played and makes this character very interesting um, in how he approaches different moments in, in scenes. And it, it complements um, Dover's character, uh, Keller, uh, as well, because he's got shame in his past with his dad um and and it's very kind of quick that the uh, news article that you see that his dad committed suicide and i don't think i made as much of a connection with that um, until looking at the film more deeply and um, part of his drive to protect his family when his father didn't and he even references i know we're going to get into it but in the first conversation with his son Uh, where he states uh, the part about always needing to be ready is what his dad taught him. And then the irony of um, you can't be ready for your father committing suicide and he left. And and then motivation for his character to always want to protect his family because his dad didn't do that um but anyways that's the the actor part of me diving into <laughs> character stuff
1: yeah no that's that's great that's I, I really like the insight about jake gyllenhaal's character when it, the first time i watched it i hated loki detective loki i, I was really frustrated with him because and uh, going back and rewatching it uh, it, it was funny. I was very like very frustrated and distracted by Detective Loki because I was so emotionally invested in Hugh Jackman's first of all his need, like the concerns, the natural concerns about his daughter. And it's just like, oh, if this happened to me, yeah, I'd want to rage. I would want to grab anything close to me and just like, you know, like tell me, just tell me where my daughter is. I don't care. I'm not interested in being clever. Nothing. I just want my child to be safe. And I get that. And detective Loki coming in and saying like, all right, you better calm down. I'd be like, fuck you. What the, what the fuck is your, no, my daughter's missing. I'm going to lose it. Right. And so, uh, so it really bothered me at first and then rewatching it. I'm just, I think Jake Gyllenhaal just did an amazing performance pushed up against Hugh Jack. Both of them are so perfect in this film because of their conflict and, and specifically because of the way they go about solving problems. And that's, so, um, this affects the structure. Yeah. We need to talk about this up front is this yeah. movie is a two-hander, right? So, uh, do you know the term two-hander?
0: Um, I, well, I was going to, what I was excited to talk about is, is kind of, you have the two here, not really, well, yeah, heroes arcs of both of them. Cause Loki mm-hmm. has his own. Um, mm-hmm. Which is second to um, to Hugh Jackman Dover's Dover's arc. Um, and they are connected, um, mm-hmm. but vary in what happens. Um, and And I love what that does for it, for the theme. So I don't know if that's
1: um, yeah, really well said. Exactly. So the the two hander is that we have two protagonists. We're following both protagonists who are actually trying to say, solve the same problem, and because of that, we get to see. Um, posed as a kind of dialectic and a dialectic is just a, you know, a, a rhetorical uh, theoretical argument between two dichotomies, two opposites opposing each other. But in this case, they're not necessarily opposing each other. Well, at one point, they, they actually they do become come to oppose each other, but there are two ways of solving the problem uh, that the movie uh, explores these, these, uh, you know, they, they, they represent different ideologies that are in conflict with each other. And the interesting thing is they're both trying to save the solved problem. They both have the same objective. The, the, this is where I think the real brilliance of this, the, scre- the screenplay structure comes in. Um, so, yeah, as a two-hander, it means you have two protagonists. It's rare. Most of the time they say you've got one character, one protagonist, and you want to solve it. Now, you brought up the term heroes. You know, I have a very specific idea of, of heroes, which is a, a hero represents an ideal Uh, Like this is the, this is the, the movie is kind of advocating that this hero is somebody who's going to either learn to do the right thing or already has the right virtues that we all, that we should aspire to. And in Prisoners, it has a very, I would say it's more of a moral mosaic where you have two different uh, protagonists that I don't know if either one of them are heroes, which make them much more interesting because they are they do come in conflict with each other, even though they're trying to achieve the same goal. And to me, that's where the real genius gets into. And then having two powerful actors like Jake Gyllenhaal and uh, Hugh Jackman in conflict with each other with an amazing supporting cast, you know, Viola Davis, Terrence Howard, and like everybody in there is like, you know, at at nines, it's fantastic. Um, So because of that, that directly affects the structure. When we look at structure, um the thing i always start looking for first is you know what is the spine what is this movie about what's the big question or problem that this movie is exploring in the way the characters solve it um so in the dramatic question it's always posed as will the protagonist achieve x you know it's always a yes or no question projected into the future um and because of that what what would you say is the dramatic question kate for prisoners
0: for me, it's it's the will. Will they find the the daughters? Um, yeah. And uh, will they save them?
1: Yeah, exactly. So will they find uh, both the daughters? Now it's it's Joy and Anna are the two girls that go missing, and right? And it brings the families together in this really dark trauma bonding uh, conflict or trauma. Um, cool. So definitely, will will they find the daughters? Um, Anna and joy. Now, the interesting thing is because this is a two hander, um, at some point you could kind of argue, well, see talent, Terrence Howard and Viola Davis start to play key roles in it, but it mostly explores and favors from the perspective of, uh, of Hugh Jackman. So we're following Hugh Jackman as a protagonist. And then Terrence Howard, Viola Davis are, are supporting cast. And then, you know, that's why we jump back and forth between the two perspectives. Um, So because of that, if we've got uh, two protagonists, that means we have two dramatic questions. So the big dramatic question of the whole story is, will they find the two girls, Joy and Anna? Um, But specifically, each protagonist has their own dramatic question and their own impetus, which is specific to... uh, to their uh, arc and their characters. So I would, uh, I would take the dramatic question of, will they find the two missing girls and take it up a notch that's specific to each character. And so because of that, the first dramatic question is will Loki find Anna and Joy by following the clues. And it's that part by following the clues that is specific to the journey that the detective Loki is going to be going on which I'm super distracted by the name Loki. I always was like, this was before, you know, Thor became huge and everything that Marvel made Thor, but, um, but I'm a big mythology enthusiast. So as soon as they got into Loki, I'm like, okay, God of mischief. Also like, you know, um, we'll get into theme in a little bit, but it just detective Loki is such a distracting name. Uh, But that said, it, you know, again, I love the character. I love the way all played him. Um so the first one is uh will loki find Anna and enjoy by following the clues. And then the second dramatic question uh, oh and at what point in the story uh do we pose that dramatic question will loki find uh Anna and enjoy okay. to girls. Um,
0: it comes a little bit later for for him than it does for uh for Dover for Keller Dover. Um so it it comes after it would come after the the call um which scene that would be, because um, there's, um, it comes once they know about the, the case, um, once he knows Good. about.
1: Yeah, so it, it being a detective is his job, so as soon as he gets the call, he's on it. So his dramatic question comes fairly early. So prototypically, a two-hour movie, the dramatic question is usually posed about 30 minutes in. Um, You usually get the impetus about 15 minutes in. And again, this is, you know, as we know from watching these episodes and doing all these movies, everybody has a different place where they need to put the impetus and dramatic question. Um, And this structure is really unusual, especially being a two-hander with two protagonists, two dramatic questions. Um, So because of that, yeah, as soon as he gets the call, he's dispatched. So when Loki is dispatched to go, you know, there's there's a child missing, he's on the case right away. That happens uh, about 15 minutes in. Um, and then the second dramatic question is, will Keller, um, find, well, you know, he's looking for and enjoy, but specifically he's, he's mostly, mostly invested in his daughter, but will Keller find his daughter by torturing Alex Jones? Now we just got to call out the fact this is, you know, this is 2013, it's a 2009 script. I don't know. Do you, what, do you know if his name was always Alex Jones in the script?
0: I, that's a good question. And I don't know, but yeah, it's one, of it's also distracting of course these days, yeah. but I, I think it was 2009 would, yeah, been yeah. early. So enough Alex Jones,
1: like obviously. So he's, he's uh, an infamous uh, conspiracy theory, kind of uh, I don't know, a character. Um, a yeah. A big media it. personality, very controversial media personality. And it's interesting because there's part of me like watching it. I'm like, Oh, is he saying a theme about, you know, conspiracy theory, which definitely plays into this, but keep in mind, the script was written all the way back in 2009. So, um, you know, I, I would love to ask us about that, but I'm not sure that that really does enter into the theme to the thematic structure because it was, you know, I'm not sure Alex Jones was in the, you know, political consciousness back in 2009 when the script was written. Um, Okay, so, but Keller has a very specific dramatic question, which is, will he find his daughter? Or will he find uh, Anna and Joy by torturing Alex Jones? That becomes his method. So the dramatic question has to do with the strategies. Loki, by following the clues. Keller, by following uh, the, the by using torture as his method. And those are, the, those are the kind of two strategies and ideologies and value systems that are in conflict with each other. Uh, One represents the law. One represents just pure, brutal uh, instinct. Um, So from the the dramatic question, and then that's posed. The interesting thing is when would you say that um, Keller has that dramatic question?
0: By torturing him, that doesn't come until he decides to, he sees him with the dog. He goes to the house. It's after um, they've released him from holding and he said the line. I they only cried when when I left them, um, and and then he he goes and he's like staking out his house, and you see him with the dog. Looks like he's he's torturing or hurting the dog yeah. even. But that's that's when after he he picks him up and then um, and then later takes him to uh, the apartment building where he, that his dad used to own. Um,
1: yeah, the, the second he was sitting there strangling his dog. I was like, oh, he's guilty. Yeah, no, he's definitely the kidnapper. He's absolutely (laughs) guilty, which is, again, it's like it taps into those. They're deliberately provoking the protective biases we have in us. You know, if you can torture a dog, you know, strong associate. If you do that to a dog, there's a high likelihood that you do that to a human being, too, especially a child. So, yeah, uh, um, exactly. So when he kidnaps uh, Alex Jones – um, that's when he crosses the threshold into, uh, this is how I'm going to solve the problem. Cause before that he was like, depending on the authorities, he did, you know, he did the right thing. He called the cops, involved them so that they can start look, looking for the daughter. But then several different things happen where Alex Jones is released. And he's like, like you need to be looking for- you have the guy who's guilty. Why would you let him go? He's convinced that he's guilty already. He knows that Alex Jones is involved. And so he decides to take justice into his own hand, or he takes the law into his own hand. And so that dramatic question comes at about 43 minutes in, which is late for most movies. But keep in mind, it starts off in 15 minutes in, you get the first dramatic question. Loki, will he find the two missing girls? And then um, Keller isn't really activated uh, in his uh, dramatic question until 43 minutes in in a two and a half hour movie that's still about 25% of the script so the pacing is just rolling the entire time stakes are very high and you're feeling it the entire time I, the whole time Hugh Jackman was so compelling in this that everything he did well once he starts kidnapping and torturing I'm like oh nah I get why he would <laughs> want to do it but like That's the moral question. It's like, no, I could, it's brutal. This is a brutal movie that really explores that Jungian shadow. Um, So from there, we've got the dramatic question, and then we want to find the climax. And the climax is the answer to the dramatic question. So um, it's not just like, you know, the emotional cathartic moment um, or the culmination. It is when uh, the character achieves or fails at the strategy, and it's irreversible. Okay. So Kate, what would you say if there's two protagonists, does it, does this movie have two climaxes?
0: It does. Um, I, at least I think it does. Um, the, the climax for, for detective Loki is kind of a more traditional where he, he goes to, um, the house after, uh, Dover has gone. Um, and, and we all know that Melissa Leo is, is the true bad guy. Um, and, and so that, that scene where he faces off with her and at that point, joy has been released. So joy's not really part of the, um, that, that climactic moment. It's, it's more a question of Anna because we don't know yet where, where she is until he gets to the house and we see her injecting her. Um, and, and then they have that face off where, um, he shoots her, he gets grazed and then yeah. will he save her after that? Um, yeah, exactly. at least it Was for me that, that climax, um, and yeah. then for, um, for Dover, um, the, the climax kind of, um, and, and also, sorry, going back to the the first dramatic question that does come from following the clues, um, mm-hmm. And he's, he follows, um, he's, he's really kind of looking into where, where Dover went at that point and suspecting him. When he goes to the house, he's, he's going to, to tell, um, I can't, I'm sorry, I'm not always the best with character names and I feel, I feel so bad <laughs> about it. Um, Holly Jones, when he goes to her house, um, he's there to tell her about what happened to Alex um, and they found him at that point. And then he discovers um, what's really going on there. Exactly. Um, Yeah. And then
1: we we had the plot point that I I called the the pit stop. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, uh, so climax number one is actually. um, So the answer to that is yes. Keller does find out where his daughter is. So in this case, torturing Alex Jones does pay off. He gets just enough information to go find his daughter mm-hmm. um, so uh, by putting together the clues acquired through torture climax number one is yes he does uh, find a, find his daughter um, and then uh, this, the second climax so the first climax is he uh, Keller finds his daughter and then the second climax is exactly uh, when uh, Loki arrives he finds it now this is what's interesting this is what is really frustrating to me is that he finds out he finds the girl completely he finds anna completely by accident cuz he's going like you said he he was sent there by the captain to uh, inform uh mrs jones uh, holly jones uh that um that her son has been tortured and that they found him and when he goes there he knocks she doesn't answer and for some reason He decides, you know what, it's a private residence, but I'm just going to walk in anyway, which is breaking and entering. It's part of the reason why I'm like, no, a police officer wouldn't do that. This detective would not do this. It's one of the things that really was jarring for me. Um, So by breaking and entering on a private residence, he discovers by chance the kidnapper in the act of murdering Anna or attempting, attempting the murder. And so, so that is the climax definitely because it achieves the response. And then after that, it's just this chase to get her to the hospital on time, really just gut wrenching scene. So stressful is really well directed. Um, and then from there, so that gives us the spine that, that tells us what the whole story is about. The dramatic question tying into the climaxes are two questions, two climaxes, um, And then we have the impetus and the impetus is the the thing that starts the story. It's the presentation of the problem that we'll spend solving the, during the movie. Uh, Now in this movie. So what is the impetus of prisoners?
0: The girls go missing. um, Yeah. Girls go missing.
1: Yeah. Which happens at 12 minutes in, like they do not waste any time. Uh, We start with this really nice, sweet, loving two families. They're having this great Thanksgiving. I it's it's great because immediately immediately you just see the chemistry you see these really great actors but they don't feel like actors they feel like characters inhabiting this world like I know this neighborhood I know these people I would hang out with these people I'd love to have like Thanksgiving with them and just that, that that the pit of my stomach dropping when we know the girls are gone It's just it's devastating um So that impetus is definitely when the girls go missing. So for Loki, uh, the, the girls go missing, he gets the call, he's on it. There's no negotiation, no hesitation. He takes the call right away with Keller. However, um, definitely his daughter going missing, uh, and joy going missing as well is definitely the impetus, but it doesn't start him on his journey until he is 100% convinced that Alex Jones took his daughter and Alex Jones knows where his daughters are or where his daughter enjoy where the two girls are. Um, so that impetus, I would say is slightly different than, uh, the impetus that motivates Loki, which is the moment in the parking lot, police parking lot, where he runs up and he starts, you know, he grabs Alex Jones and he says, they didn't, they didn't cry until I left them. And, uh, So that's the moment where um, Keller goes from being like a terrified, worried uh, father to, oh, no, I'm going to take this guy and I'm going to beat the shit out of him until he tells me the truth. And I'm going to make sure that he can't hurt my hurt, the little girls anymore. And it's interesting because it's so like watching it the first time it was in a theater. I couldn't pause it. There's no subtitles. So I'm like, wait, what did he say? he said, I, I, they didn't cry until, so there's that kind of question in my mind, wait, did he actually say that? Or did I just hear that? And then Keller says, well, I heard him say this and I'm not even sure I witnessed it and I'm not even sure that's what he said. So there's that kind of great moral quandary, really well executed. The only problem I have with that line is they didn't cry until I left. And I'm like, well, how do you know that they cried? You were gone. Which is Just this kind of a, okay. It, it it feels like a plot contrivance, but But it works. It's enough for me to be like, if he said that, I'd be like, well, where are they? I I was pretty convinced that he was uh, definitely involved. Just the only reason I didn't think that he was the actual kid, the actual kidnapper was because I know this is a mystery and I know the genre. Um, But in the real world, somebody says something like that, I am going to feel like, okay, this person is guilty. They're definitely responsible for this. Um, so that gives us the, the, the first act is really uh, just, you know, just the fact we have two impetuses, two dramatic questions. Um, we already have a really solid first act. And so from there, we want to track the progress, the ups, the major ups and the major downs. We always want to start wide and work our way into the specifics. So we move on to the midpoint. And the Midpoint is a really interesting moment in the movie. What would you say the midpoint of prisoners is?
0: This is one that I struggled with and maybe because as I was looking at it, uh, there's, there's kind of, um, there's a potential of a, a couple different points and there, I guess, because there's two, it's a two-hander there, there would be two. Um, I was kind of tracking to see, and it's uh, right, right in the, the middle, um, uh, of the film runtime wise is when, um, both, um, Let's see, it's Nancy and Franklin are Viola Davis and Terrence Howard's characters. I think, yeah, they um, they make the decision that they're not going to help anymore. They're not going to stop him, but they're not going to help anymore. Um, oh, so that he's on his interesting. So that was one I tracked, but um, mm-hmm. but then I also watched uh, a um, an interview with Villeneuve and he was talking about how he didn't say it was the midpoint, but the scene where Loki is watching, um, uh, Dover at the liquor store in the rain, and then it starts to snow. Um, so that might be as well where they two kind of, they, the two stories kind of hit and, um, Loki starts to suspect or watch that was, uh, Villeneuve's words. Um, cause when I watched it, I didn't get as much of a sense that, um, that um Hall that loki was suspecting him i it was more like i thought he was still on um that uh jones's disappearance wouldn't be connected to um to dover but that may have just been my take on it um and yeah that, that that's, a, was, that's
1: a really good take um i hadn't thought about that as as you know where i that's one of my favorite moments in the entire movie where Viola Davis is like, I want to see him. And you're kind of expecting her to kind of be the moral voice of reason of like, what are you doing? Like, you're both going to go to prison now. Why would you do that? And the fact that she is even more gung ho about it than her husband, Terrence, uh, Terrence Howard, Terrence Howard's character. Like the fact that she's like, uh, that, that was a great character moment. Cause it was like, okay, we're not going to stop them, but we're also not going to come out because she she's kind of closer to the audience. It's like, look, I don't want to do this. I don't want to get my hands dirty, but you know, this is our daughter we're talking about. And the police from the outside, the police look like they're just screwing up left and right, you know, cause they don't yeah. know the ins and outs of what Loki's going through. Um, so that, that's a, that's a great theory for midpoint. I do think it is definitely a major turn, but, when it comes to tracking the arc of the strategies for uh, for Loki and Keller I do think it is that moment uh, where they, they get in the car where he tracks them to that liquor store that's just outside the apartment and then when they get in the car um, it's it's that moment where they he's you know he says stop following me and go look for my daughter and uh, and the reason why that's such a big midpoint is because first of all you see the two, you know, ideologies, the two characters come directly in conflict with each other. Before that, they're both trying to solve the same problem in completely different ways. Now, all of a sudden, Loki is suddenly like, wait a minute, he's doing something that's actually his instincts, his detective instincts are saying, this guy is wrapping himself up uh, in this uh, conspiracy as well. He's doing something. He's connected in some way. And that brings him into conflict with each other. Before that, they're antagonistic toward each other, but they're not in, uh, in conflict necessarily. They're both trying to solve the same problem. Suddenly, at the midpoint, they are in conflict with each other. And that's, that's when we get that really great drama between these really powerhouse actors uh, and, you know, really well-written characters too. Uh, so from the midpoint, we want to go to the low point. Now, this is a movie that starts, well, actually, it starts really high, you know, Thanksgiving. It's great. And then just drops into the basement of hell and just keeps getting lower. And then you find all sorts of lower levels. Um, so what would you say is the the low point for prisoners?
0: So I think there, again, are two, um, which yeah. tracks oh, yeah. with, with the two stories. So the low point for um, for Keller, for Dover, is um, is when he looks at the picture of the bloody sock, um, for, for his daughter, um, for, for me, because then it's, does he find his daughter? The answer in that moment is no. And, and torturing did no good, right. They didn't find her. Um, and, and I I thought performance wise such a great scene, both of them, Mm -hmm. Viola Davis and Terrence Howard, their moment reacting to it. And then, and then his too, um, and, there, we can talk about this later if you want to, but in the Jake Gyllenhaal interview originally, he's supposed to get really angry and throw him against the wall. And Hugh Jackman actually came in and was like, this doesn't feel right. And um, there is the line there of um, where he does say that you, you wasted your time. You could have been looking for her basically. Yeah. this It's on you, but it's subdued, which is um, so much more, powerful and hurtful and um mm-hmm. it just lands i think so much better than like a batman style like yeah. <laughs> or wolverine style confrontation um yeah we've already seen him part-
1: explode oh sorry go ahead
0: oh yeah no it, that, that's okay i i um that that was it um
1: yeah uh, we've already seen uh keller explode and torture uh, Alex Jones. And we're seeing him just like rah, rah rage and rage and rage. And Hugh Jackman just has this amazing emotional stamina where he can really just surrender to the emotions of the character. So, so I always believe his performance it, it, and it's, and then he's seeing him up against, you know, Hall who's playing it cool. Who's frustrated and he's right on the edge of, you know, just like, I'm just trying to solve this. Let me do my job. It's good tension. Um, so him, you know, like that moment of just like, it feels like defeat. Uh, it, it, that's great instincts because I agree. I, I wouldn't have wanted to see him blow up at Loki because, because at that point it wouldn't, I wouldn't have bought it. I agree. I, that's great story yeah. instincts on the Jackman's part. Um, so th- that's a really good point. Did he, did he do any more torturing after he saw the socks? That's a good
0: question. Did he question. interrogate um, anymore? I'm trying to remember if there's more of the hot water moments because there is, I think he comes I'm not remember. Now I want to go back and check, um, yeah. hot water moment. There's cause there is one more discovery with him. I think at that point he is, um, is that when he gets ready to let him go? Cause at that point he, he is slower. I, I don't, I want to say that he doesn't, but I, I can't fully remember which, um, so It's frustrating. frustrating. Okay. So
1: there is, yeah, uh, there is, this is a really complex scene or scene structure as well. It's, it's huge moment after huge moment. And I think it's really well paced, really well directed. Um, so there's, there's the, like after the sock, there is the moment where he's like, just tell me where she is. Uh, and then he says, she's in the maze. And that's what leads him to say like, okay, maybe what he means by maze, maybe I need to go investigate what he might mean by that. So if I go talk to his mom, maybe she can kind of shed some light on what, uh, what he might mean by they're in the maze. And that's what drives him to go to Holly Jones's house, uh, and, and talk to her, you know, and kind of do that fake thing of like, well, I just feel really bad about, you know, beating him up and scaring him off. Um, so there, so I would say that, that's a great moment because it it is that it hits that feeling of despair and I would definitely say like that is definitely the low point for viola davis's character um mm-hmm. because it feels like there's no hope after that, except there is there is still hope they haven't found the bodies and they haven't found the little girls um so I would say the the low point for Keller in particular um Oh, actually, let let's talk about the low point for Loki because Keller and Loki, you're yeah. right. There are two low points. So Loki, I would say that his low point is that the part where he just loses it the most is after the suspect suicide when Bob Taylor kills himself uh, during the interrogation. That after that moment, like his career is fucking ruined, and then on top of that, he's uh, he goes out and he's like, he was my one link to find these girls. And he shot mm-hmm. himself and he's like, I needed him alive to solve this. So he's furious. So I would say that that is Loki's low point. Um, I agree. And, and that, you know, because, and also look at it emotionally, like that's the, the most unrivaled. Most of the time he, he keeps it disciplined. He gets frustrated, especially during the interrogations. You can see his anger, but he keeps it really bottled up. And, and Hall's great casting for that because you always feel like he's just like this ravenous animal who's about to like, just lash out. And, um, so, so when he loses it, you're like, Oh, f- this really definitely affected him. It's, it's changing his career, but it also more importantly ruined his chances of finding these girls. Um, and then the low point for Keller, and this is part of what I think is really unique about this is this, this is especially true with tragedies. The low point, I would also say, is the climax. So usually you have those as two separate plot points, but there's not a single moment where where Keller is further. You get the slight satisfaction of saying, okay, I know where my daughter is, but I'm powerless to protect her. There might be, but the problem is, is we don't, he still doesn't know for a fact. This could be some other psychotic woman taking credit. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, we don't know. He doesn't actually see the daughter, so he doesn't yeah. know for sure. It's just what she says. And, yeah. Um, and yeah, that's true. And the last thing she says before uh, before closing that hatch and leaving him in the hole in the ground is, I hope you're still alive when I throw her, her body down there. Yeah, so. turning the <sighs> screws. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, it's infuriating.
0: It too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Expect- that's Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's literally, you, you almost, geographically, you can't get lower than that, than a pit in the ground. Um, yeah, so, so that gives us, uh, just going from there, that gives us, oh, you know what? I want to hit uh, two more little plot points that, uh, so we usually go, once we get the kind of map of the, the big uh, s- story structure, we always go back to the hook. And the hook plays a oh, yeah. different role. Uh, the, the hook is a bit of a unique plot point because sometimes the hook has nothing to do with the plot of the story, but it sheds some light on the themes um, or it mm-hmm. develops character. you know every hook is is usually kind of the um the thematic opening where it's saying like this is the tone of the story, and it's kind of the story in many or the conflict in many uh so what what is the hook for prisoners?
0: So we have that opening shot of just the forest that feels tense. Um, Mm -hmm. and then we have the, the deer, a doe, um, and we're pulling back to reveal the son and father hunting. Um, so it's kind of an interesting of like, there's, we're just in the forest, which is kind of, there's that as a metaphor, the wood and the forest are used a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. so I'm curious to, to talk about that in, in a bit, um, and then it's as we're pulling back, we're hearing the the Lord's Prayer, um, yeah. especially for what's really interesting. And and Dover repeats it later on, but the line, you know, and forgive those that trespass against us. And when he's with um, when he's with Alex Jones, he can't say that part yeah. um, later on when it's repeated. Yep. So. I thought that was really interesting. And of course, religion plays a very interesting part, especially to um our, our big bad to um Holly yeah. Jones and why yeah. her motivation. So I'm looking forward to talking about that too. But for me that was um was part of the hook. I, I at least that's the opening image and it did hook me. So I don't know. Um no. maybe the other part is the R V moving in but um
1: so so the hook is a completely like scene on its own and i think you're dead on right the the hook is that opening sequence where they're hunting the deer with the lord's prayer you immediately get a sense of the world you get a sense of the characters and the final shot in the hook scene is the deer laying dead in the bed of their truck Uh, so it's it's this interesting provocative image um, that tells us a lot about the characters very quickly and this is like maybe a two minute sequence with the, with the voiceover of the Lord's prayer. Uh, So immediately you get a sense uh, of the value system of these characters, their narratives that they live by. Uh, So yeah, really great. And then there's uh, of course uh, there's, there's one other major plot point that I actually don't have in my dramatic structure. um, But it's a plot point that they use uh, to culminate a very, Specific, it, it causes a major turn in the entire story, and uh, I still have some conflicts with it. But it, it but it is a major turn because the, an act culminates and it changes the strategies of the characters. Um, and this, this is this uh, this plot point that I'm calling the break. And this is the uh, the break. And this is where Joy turns up out of nowhere. Joy is found on the side of a freeway. And, uh, she's taken to the hospital and like, there's no clues. There's nothing like just luckily she got away. And, um, and because of that, all of a sudden it fills in all of the clues that Keller needed to be like, Oh, I think I know where she was. And I think I know where my daughter is now. Um, so that, that moment is a, it's an unusual plot point, but it dramatically affects the structure of the entire, uh, of the entire movie. And then of course, we got to talk about, um, this, this major last, uh, it's kind of a reconciliation scene. It's a very understated reconciliation. Reconciliation is usually where uh, two characters in conflict, um, usually a protagonist, uh, who is in conflict with a uh, supporting character. They have this reconciliation. In this case, it's a very subtle way of having two protagonists reconcile with each other, um, and that is, you know, the the resolution where um, they're excavating the crime scene, and there's that whistle blowing the faint thing in the in the, you know in the wind, and then uh, we go to credits just as we're hearing this. So, so, in your opinion, does he find Keller in the pit?
0: I I like to be hopeful that he does and I, I think um, because at first he's like, eh, but then he listens again. So um, for me, and just tracking with Loki's character of he never, he there's never been a case that he hasn't solved. Um, mm-hmm. I think he'd still be looking for him even with their differences and he would investigate it. So if he would yeah. go into all those boxes with snakes and stuff, he would yep. he would be uh, listening for that whistle. And I, I, I also feel like um, Dover's not going to give up on it. But it's a very ambiguous ending where it could go either way, which is great and frustrating, um, but subtle in a brilliant way. Yeah.
1: So this, I mean, this reminds me a lot of the, the very last shot in uh, Inception, uh, which oh, yeah. we... We shouldn't talk about too much because we're probably going to do an episode on Inception. Um, I've gotten a lot of requests for, for Inception in particular. Um, but it's that last scene where the, the, the top is spinning and the, you know, the top is what he uses to tell whether he's in a dream or not. And then it cuts before the, the top stops spinning. This is a similar moment where it's like, well, does he, so does he find it or not? It leaves you in the question. Now, honestly, I think it is just a, it's a fun thing for the director to do for the audience to be like, Oh, come on. Just tell me. I 100% believe, well, it's a fictional story. So the only thing we know about the story is that it ends before that question is answered. But in the world of the story, I think the reason why you have that it's, they didn't have a shot of Loki. No, he probably didn't. He just, he probably didn't hear it. He thought, you know, we never got a moment of dismissal of him walking away, and we still hear the whistle blowing. That would have been a devastating scene. Instead, because we ended on him with his curiosity being pricked, it also speaks to Loki's instincts, even when they're flawed and don't make sense. He trusts his instincts, and those instincts keep on revealing the truth. He keep like when he thinks he has an answer, he keeps pushing to see if that actually is the answer which is what I like so much about that character. So I agree with you. I I would say like, because he hears he's, as soon as his curiosity is pricked, his instincts are going to kick in saying there's something more here. And then, yeah, I think, I think he probably finds him, And then uh, Keller Dover ends up to probably spend a few years in prison for torturing somebody Um, an innocent. well, yeah, basically an innocent person. Um,
0: person. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, he's he's innocent uh, because he doesn't have the mental capacity to know that he was participating in the kidnapping. Um, but he was involved. Uh, Alex Jones was involved. Cool. So once we have these kind of major landmarks, the reason why we needed to throw this break in there and this resolution is because this is what gives us the act structure. Now, the act structure, this is, again, a uh, four-act structure. I use, I use the four-act structure because uh, the midpoint, Is a a dramatic culmination that causes the character to renegotiate their strategy and they shift. It's a completely different approach that they have. Um, So the first act uh, ends up being about 43 minutes. We cross the threshold into the second act when Keller kidnaps Alex Jones. Um, And then the second act, uh, goes all the way up to the midpoint, and that's that's a really solid like you know f- another forty five minutes. So we're already ninety minutes. This this is already like a really solid. If it if it ended at this point, we have lots of momentum, lots of uh, of character development. Um, and then the third act. The interesting thing is each one of these acts are really long, and even the fourth act is a pretty long fourth act. It it goes you know all the way from two hours. Uh, To like half an hour, like, and a lot of this is that last scene. Like they, most of these scenes are very, very short scenes, except when we get to, he finds, um, he he goes back to Holly Jones's house. Keller goes back to Holly Jones's house. That scene is drawn out tension. And then um, Loki comes in, finds the girl and then, gets her back to the hospital. That's another drawn out moment. So this act four is really long act four, but it's still the shortest act out of all four of them. Um, so these are, these are major landmarks. When we're developing our own stories, we want to kind of figure out where these landmarks land so that we can contextualize all the other set pieces and all the other ups and downs. Um, so that we have a kind of pacing and, and, and understand where the plot is going to take us. Um, so from there, once we have a good sense of the structure, uh, we want to start looking at the character and how, you know, plot is the product of a character trying to solve a problem. And this movie is a perfect example of that because we have two characters trying to save the same problem with completely different strategies. Um, so because of that, we, because we have two protagonists, we have to have two inner conflicts or two characters. Now, do you, do you see this as, uh, two character arcs? Do we have two character arcs?
0: I I think we do. Um, and I, I would say that a lot of, for a while, um, in some ways, um, well, not in some ways, Keller's arc is a fall arc. Um, he's, he is not, it's kind of the opposite of a hero's arc. Um, he, mm-hmm. he becomes the worst version of, of himself on this journey. Um, although, and in, in some ways, uh, Loki I don't know, in some ways, he, he, there's not a huge change um, from beginning to to end uh, for him. So I maybe you could argue there's not as much of an arc, but I, I do think his worldview, um, well, maybe it doesn't shift, but there's an interesting point of um, at the end when he's being called the hero and he's grappling with it that um, I'd love to talk about. So, I, yeah, I'm not... Not hundred percent sure, but, um,
1: What, as an what actor, I, what is, what is your feeling about arcs with characters? Do, do characters need to have an arc, um, in order to, you know, be like, does that, is that, uh, inform your sense of whether the movie is a good movie or a quality story or not?
0: I don't think that every movie needs to necessarily have like a huge change arc. I think there are ones where, um, I think it's K.M. Weiland talks about that there are ones where the, the, the world changes, but the character like value wise doesn't change. But I, I struggle with that too, because how can a character go through something and go through this experience and not end up changed in some way? Um, Mm -hmm. I think it depends on the story. I don't know if that's (laughs) the most helpful answer, but, um, I also, I don't mind stories if a character is, um, I, I don't think we, we need positive arcs all the time. Uh, that would, mm-hmm. that would make it boring and not truthful to, to life. Um, I think it's interesting to explore different ones. And then there are cases in real life where people don't change. So, um, mm-hmm. it's more yeah. So do you, not
1: so, uh, in your sensibility of story, if there is no character arc, cause we, we do see a lot of movies with no character arcs where the characters don't transform does that mean that it's a a lesser movie or an an ineffective movie?
0: It doesn't have to be No, Um, it depends on, I think the world of, of the story too. And, um, they're able to change it or impact it in some way. Um, there's going to be some change because something has to happen if it's, if it's not within the character and some, some characters do stay consistent with their values. Um, and, Mm -hmm. and we can like that as, as an audience. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I, I'm, I'm kind of probing that a little bit cause I, I do hear a lot of um, screenwriters, some call them gurus or consultants or, you know, whatever you want to call them. Some, and some screenwriters, they insist that there must be an arc. There must be an emotional transformation or the stir story isn't worth telling. I don't agree with that at all. I think there are tons of stories like in particular, like, you know, um, fantasy stories like, you know, like James Bond or, um, uh, what's it, the, the, the new Star Wars movies, you know, those are, those are fantasies where we're kind of like the the protagonist is like, they don't have an arc necessarily. They don't have a necessarily transformation. They're just really good at what they do. And because of that, sometimes it's fun to have fantasies about like, wow, that's, it's fun watching somebody who just can, you know, solve every conflict and they're just that savvy enough that they don't have to have a transformation of values. Um, and, you know, and that plays a different role or, or sometimes you have a character who I had this set of values. I'm going to go through this conflict. And at the end, uh, not only do they have the set of values, they now have proof that their set of values were the right thing for them to believe in. And so, yeah, I, I don't believe there, there's enough range of stories that store as, as long as you're emotionally compelling And engage us, then I think the story is worth telling. So no, I agree with you. I don't think the stories need to have an arc or a transformation of values. Yeah, I've definitely beaten that to 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 beaten that dead horse. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But in this case, yes, I do think we have some really interesting emotional epiphanies and value changes that that we can explore. Um, So with the dramatic with the sorry with the inner conflict of the characters. Uh, we use the inner conflict to inform the way we structure the plot. Now, this is kind of a way of deconstructing characters. So you have a character that already has these values. And this is these questions are designed to kind of get us to wonder uh, but just by the choices they're making, gain insight into the inner machine of their psychology. Um, so we always start off looking at the the conscious desire the and compare that to the unconscious drive which is what drives the conscious desire and then that usually has nested within an achilles heel which is kind of a flaw or a false belief and that achilles heel is usually the piece of the character that is going to be tested or changed that right there that nugget of the achilles heel is the transformational ground that usually happens in a character arc and it's the 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 field of conflict they face is the moral sphere. And the moral sphere has an imperative, which says, if you want to survive this moral sphere, you need to change your Achilles heel. Um, and then that's where the art comes from. And once we identify the moral imperative, then we're able to extrapolate a theme or basically ask the question of what did I learn from this story? So in the case of the conscious desire, this is the, this, the thing that character knows that they want to do. Um, So in Keller's conscious desire, what would you say that is?
0: It's to find, find his daughter.
1: Um, Yeah. So for Keller, it's to find his daughter and he's also invested in finding joy, but you know, clearly it's his daughter. He's, you know, his priority is definitely finding his daughter and you know, the two are together. They come as a set. Um, So definitely like the, the dramatic question and the conscious desire are usually one in the same. Uh, and then we go to the unconscious drive and the unconscious drive is the value systems, the things they want to believe and prove about themselves, what they hold sacred and profane in the case of Keller, how would you articulate his unconscious drive? What are his values?
0: Um, his values are to be prepared, to be the protector, to protect his family, um, yeah. at all costs. Um, and definitely. That his ghost of his father, not doing that. It definitely shows yeah. up.
1: And a good way to, when, when you're developing a character at home um, a good way to identify an unconscious drive is ask yourself, what is the protagonist prove or trying to prove about themselves? What is the thing that they feel about themselves that they want everybody else to recognize and feel? Now, most of them don't, most, most of us don't know when we're trying to convey certain things. We, we make judgments on character based on how they're behaving. And it's the behavior that is totally unconscious, but it, it is driving them to make the choices of the dramatic question, which is why the unconscious drive drives them to uh, to engage the conscious desire. It's it's the conscious and the unconscious that both both inform each other. And I would totally agree. It, it's, Keller is definitely wants to prove that he can protect his family. That is how he defines himself completely. Um and then nested within that is an Achilles heel. And Achilles heel is kind of this false belief or flaw that's nested within his value system. What would you say that is for Keller?
0: For him, it's that these going to the extremes, kind of the, the ends justify the means, right? Like it yeah. doesn't matter how, how far you go if it's for the right reasons. It's yeah. Kind of. Like it's justified even putting the picture up next to the, the Walden isolation yeah. chamber of it's just in case you start to feel pity for him. Remember, um, remember this photo um, of, of our two girls. So you don't, there's no compassion, which whew, um, yeah. was very dark. <laughs>
1: yeah, it is really dark because I'm sympathetic to it too. I'm very sympathetic to yeah. the, the choices they made. I, I want to believe that I would make that choice would not make the choice of Becoming a monster who is capable of torturing somebody, but and I never know. Feel um like yeah, I think that's
0: oh, it's tough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Um so uh from there, yeah, I agree. I, I think the Achilles heel is that he it's that by any means necessary, you're right. It, it, as long as the, the objective rationalizes all of your moral decisions. And this is, is something very specific to him is he's a he's a prepper, which is a, a specific ideology that they're using in the, this in many ways this movie starts out as a criticism of that kind of prepper mentality of like, look, you got to be ready for society to drop. That's why he has all that survival gear in the basement. He's telling his kid, you got to be ready. Uh, and so the, at the end, he, I would say that his Achilles heels, he believes the law is an impediment to justice. And it's, and I choose that specifically because he looks at law and authority as something that's getting in the way of solving the problem. And there's a good, there's a good case for it. Like he's convinced that Alex Jones is the guilty one, uh, or that he's involved in some way. And he's not completely wrong about that. Um, huh. Alex Jones is a victim, but he's also a conspirator, which is something that we need to talk about. um, so because of that, he believes the law is an impediment to justice. Now, with the moral imperative, um, this is kind of the field of conflict. It's it's the world that he's entering into, and he has to navigate in order to find his daughter. How would you articulate that moral imperative?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, can you say it one more time just to make sure um,
1: I have, yeah. I've got so- – so the moral imperative is kind of the source of all of the antagonism. So in this okay. world, in this movie, in order to find his daughter, what is the world? What are the rules of the, the world telling him that he must do in order to find his daughter?
0: In, um, and, his and keep in mind, from mind the world itself, from Keller, just, just
1: from, sure. from Keller's perspective,
0: Oh, from his perspective, yeah. yeah and that it's
1: keep in mind not- that the uh, the the moral imperative and the Achilles heel are usually in direct contradiction of each other. The moral imperative tells you that your Achilles heel is the thing stopping you from achieving your goal. So, if his if his Achilles heel is that he believes that law is the impediment to justice, that moral imperative is directly connected to that. It's a contradiction of that.
0: Um, Um, So so how would you um, articulate that? Well, in this world, actually, if he would work with the law, even though in the beginning it's not, like if he could get with Jake Gyllenhaal and they share that classic mystery tension where different characters have the different puzzle pieces and they need to get together He actually, they would have found her faster, but he doesn't trust the law. And he believes that the only way to get this information is, is through the extreme means. Um, Yeah. I don't know if that answers it.
1: Yeah, it does. Definitely. Um, I think that articulates exactly what's going on is to find his daughter, he must break the law. And because that, that becomes the way he actually solves the, it is through the torture that he finds his daughter. Otherwise, we're following red herring after red herring after red herring. And we are looking at a ticking time, like a, a, a ticking clock where these daughter, uh, these girls, the, each hour that passes is less and less likely that these girls are going to survive. So every minute counts. Um, and so because of that, uh, the moral imperative teaches him that in order to find his daughter, he has to break this law. Which is what's interesting is in most cases, the moral imperative is in contradiction of the Achilles heel. But in this case, the Achilles heel and the moral imperative line up, which gets into part of what is in conflict for me. And again, I don't think a movie has to have a character arc. So it's not that they're wrong to do this. It's that uh, I'm, I'm really bothered by what the movie is claiming uh, from it. Uh, So the theme is pretty much what we can extrapolate from the story that, you know, Keller goes through and what we can learn from that. I I would articulate that is by paying the price of his sins or by paying the price of his sins, your sins, you lead others to the truth. Which is interesting because it's it's when I first watched this movie, my thought was, okay, this is a movie about he's torturing an innocent person. But the irony is that he's torturing someone who is a conspirator, who's uh, he's innocent because he doesn't have the mental capacity to know that what he's doing is right or wrong. He doesn't understand what's going on. So he is torturing an innocent person. But by torturing this innocent person, he does end up finding the truth. And I hate that because originally I took this movie as like a condemnation of torture. Like you shouldn't torture because you could be torturing an innocent person and that would make you the monster. The problem is, is that this movie rewards torturing a person. It's by torturing Alex Jones that he finds out where his daughter is. And by him finding out where his daughter is, he has to pay the price of going into the pit. And that's what leads Loki to finding his daughter. So uh so because of that I think this is what the movie proves the proposition that this movie claims and I disagree with the proposition. I don't like the proposition because it's a a moral justification for torture which I'm against. I think torture is uh you know it's 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 a war crime and it's it's internationally sh- should always be recognized as uh as a crime. Um, but this movie makes the case that, that actually torture justifies the means or the means justify the ends in this case. Um, so with Loki, let, let's take that same, uh, character deconstruction when it comes to Loki. Um, okay. So his conscious desire, same thing, find Anna and joy, uh, and then his unconscious drive, wh- what are Loki's values? What do we learn by the, the way he solves problems?
0: he um i feel like there is this sense that he's got to do what he feels is is right um instinct yeah. wise too he he follows the rule book and goes with the institution mm-hmm. um of being a police officer most of the time until it doesn't make sense right where true justice isn't isn't being served which is interesting um okay. I'm trying to find a good way to articulate but yeah i agree how. with you
1: i i do think that he is he is following proper police procedure. He's, you know, he's questioning people. He's, uh, respecting the rules of the law until the very end. You know, he doesn't just walk into people's houses without a warrant every t- Like, uh, the scene where break, he breaks into Bob Taylor with, with his house and he finds, you know, all of the disturbing mannequins and the snakes and the, the evidence, um, like that was justified because the guy was showing, uh, aggression. There was, there's reasonable suspicion, uh, for, uh, being a part of this. And then when the guy ran that justified his actions. Um, so Loki is using the law. He is holding up the law. Um, and he's using, uh, he's solving a crime is the product. So he, his value is he believes that he can decipher the puzzles. He looks at a crime as a series of puzzles and in order to solve them, uh, that's how he finds the truth. It's not through torture. It's not through beating, even though he does kind of engage in uh, strong levels of intimidation and things like that. Um, Most of the time, he's convinced that just by the process of his intellect, he can solve uh, what the crime is. Uh, So from the unconscious drive, we have the Achilles heel, uh, the false or flawed belief. Um, What would you say if he has an Achilles heel, what would you say that is? Um, is there anything he's wrong about
0: that the that the um, story? There proves? are times that he is um, where I I feel like he he hesitates. He does hesitate, and and that's where um, where Dover's justified a bit. And it's I don't. But he's also caught in like he wants to keep um, Alex Jones longer, but his boss won't let him. But he's yeah. going to follow the rules and has to try and, and, and follow the correct rules. Um, and in this case, it's, a, it's gray in terms of kind of what you just talked about with why, um, why it works with why dope is able to get the information.
1: Do you want a quick, take a quick pause? All right. So, uh, took a quick break. Uh, so he, uh, believes the clues will reveal the truth, right? Um, so this is getting back to the inner conflict of Loki. Um, and that, that central belief is that, you know, just by following clues, he can figure everything out. So he's smart enough to resolve everything. But in the case of this world, the moral sphere doesn't quite, you could have all the clues in the world and it won't necessarily build the truth. It'll build a narrative. You can build a narrative from that, but that narrative isn't always the full truth. And the interesting thing is that in in this case, I think the moral imperative is that to find Anna, he must follow his instincts of a bloodthirsty father. That's the interesting thing about this is Loki doesn't solve the crime he follows his instincts, he follows Keller, and by following Keller, that's what opens the door for him to go to Holly Jones's house. It's not by solving the, the clues, it's by he, he got lucky. He literally just got lucky that he found the girl in the moment that she was murdering him. He also got lucky that he pushed the door open and walked in and decided to investigate. Now you could say that that's his instincts and his curiosity. Sure. It's, I don't think it's a plot hole. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, there are plenty of characters that would do that detectives that might make that decision in that moment, but most detectives are not going to screw up their investigation by trespassing on a private residence without a warrant because it compromises their investigation. Um,
0: See, I would argue, and I was going to say this earlier, but I would argue that he might have a reason to, to enter because he's worried about Keller, because he's worried about Dover maybe doing something that could be a motivation. Why? Because he doesn't know where Dover is. And if Dover's done with, with Jones, there is with Alex Jones, there might be a reason that he could do something to Holly Jones, who he believes at this point is just an innocent, um, woman, you know, um, But she's not, but that's just one theory. That's
1: just one. That's a really good point. I didn't think about that. That's a really good point. Okay. That's an excellent point. The more I think about it, that that's, that's a fair, that's a really fair criticism because at that point he doesn't know where Keller is. uh, Keller already went after Alex Jones. She's not answering her door. Yeah, you're right. That's a really good point. So a detective knowing that that's the situation probably would feel just and it ended up being justified because he got lucky and found her as she's murdering the daughter. But you're right. Just the, just the fact that she's not answering her door could be cause to justify uh, entering the house. Okay. You're right. I'm glad you brought that up because I was really frustrated with the structure. I'm like, I don't believe he'd make that decision and the entire plot hinges on him deciding to push that door open. Okay. You may. <laughs> yeah. That's a really good point. That's why I'm glad we're having this conversation. That's, that's a good turn. Cause I, I went from being very like, I'm really frustrated with this movie to, uh, to being okay. Yeah. you persuaded me. Cool. And then uh, again, I, I still think, I still think the theme comes back to uh, solving a crime hinges on random chance. So, All of his instincts, all of his uh, intelligence and uh, clues and deciphering and problem solving skills still add up to him getting lucky. He got lucky when he saw the the priest passed out and then he got you know, he was curious, but he still just got lucky that he found them in that moment when he sees a body laying on the ground that's, that's grounds for going into the residence. Cause he's like, Oh, this person might be dead or have a heart attack. So, you know, he's justified in going into the house. And once he's in the house, he's justified in, you know, poking around a little, a little bit more. And he's lucky that he was in there the moment that all those things lined up to justify looking in the basement and finding the the dead body. So, but as a I. I It's frustrating for a mystery to be everything is just chance. And I I was really frustrated with that theme. But it's true. Like, it's true. Most cases, if they get a break in the story, the girl escaping, when Joy escapes, shows up at the hospital, she got lucky. All of their investigation was coming to a dead end and it, like joy escaping is what helped keller realize oh i think she i think they're at the joneses place and so it's like that break in the in, in you know that that break in the investigation is what helped both of them find the truth um so which again i can accept that this is a story about how as much as you 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 can torture somebody and become a monster and then pay the price for your sins. And you might find the truth, but still it ends up with chance. You're still throwing yourself to chance of whether this could be. And and the whole movie has all of these little like threads that suggest a kind of conspiracy. I mean, it is a conspiracy. There's a conspiracy of several different people kidnapping children. Um, I want to make sure we're not getting too off track, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. This, this is a good time to talk about what, it, what is it really about? Um, So the, the big question this, this begins to ask is like, you know, was, does this movie justify Keller in torturing Alex Jones to find the two little girls?
0: I guess in some way it does, but there are, there are costs to it. And, um, what I think is interesting about Alex is that he is one of the children who was a victim. And that's why he has diminished capacity is the trauma and the abuse with the snakes and the drugs left him in, in such a frozen state that, and then you see the effect on, um, Bob Taylor as well, that he's severely psychologically disturbed where he's drawing, he can't stop drawing the mazes and then whatever he's trying to do with processing with the clothes and the pig's blood. And I mean, it's, it's very disturbing, um, and I don't know, I think there is something to, we want to make sense of these horrible things that people do and, mm-hmm. um, the justification, cause I'm always interested in what the, like the big bad says about, yeah. um, why they do what they do. Cause for me, there's something there that's really that kernel super important and, the motivation I thought it was really interesting is we're waging a war against God because they, Mm -hmm. they lost their son to cancer and they used to have faith. They're now going to take away other people's children and turn them into demons. And she says to, um, to Dover to Keller that that's what he's done. And he said in his um, opening lines to his son, when they're driving in the car, that the reason that you need to be prepared is because people will turn on each other in the event of any, um, natural disaster. And then he becomes one of those people that turns, um, and has that, um, that negative view. So I think there is a key bit about, um, you know, the evils that people do and, and why, and that they don't fully make sense. And that's part of the reason why maybe the traditional police proceeding methods right why they fail especially when you have people involved like his boss who's uh the i guess he would be the chief of police is kind of lazy and doesn't want to keep pursuing the leads and even the guys working on excavating the crime scene at the end are like oh it's frozen over and that's how like a lot of us are with just our jobs but they're in a job that it really matters that you can't them slacking off means that, uh, Dover doesn't get found. Um, and there's reasons why, but, um, I think that's where, I don't know, there's ways that evil operates in chaos and not according to the laws and the ways things should be. And so I think there's maybe this, this in-between part of, um, not full on, I, I think the torture is, Wrong, and I, I think there are extreme costs, but it's almost like the instinct part of it, and it not making sense. I, I think there's some some truth to that, but the film doesn't. I don't know. It does kind of leave it in that ambiguous place, and in some ways, that the torture pays off for for finding. Um, but again, at what cost? And um, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I mean in the end the, the the biggest cost is Alex Jones is uh, just a just a, he's brutal he's a victim who's being brutalized. Um that's the biggest cost and then the second biggest cost is you know of course that uh Hugh Jackman's car sorry Keller is um you know he he becomes a monster he, he basically becomes you know he's not going to be with his family No matter how it comes out, he's not going to be able to guide them, protect them. He fails them completely in that sense. He helps to save his daughter. He actually does help to save his daughter, um, but ends up having to um, remove himself from their life after that. So it's, it's devastating, but it's also like, okay, the price to pay is, well, you know, if you had to protect your kids, would you sacrifice the rest of your life for it? And a lot of parents would say, yeah, absolutely, in a heartbeat. Um, so it's part of the thing that's it's frustrating. Now you know this was what was two thousand twelve when this movie came out, two thousand
0: thirteen, or I think two thousand thirteen. Yeah, yeah,
1: okay. So you know this is in the context, and the, the script was written in two thousand nine, which means it was probably developed for a few years before that. Um, and that's coming right off of the Bush years, and of course this is speaking to you know I don't want to get too much into the politics of the time and stuff, but. Uh, it is definitely speaking to a major theme about revelations of, you know, Abu Ghraib and. Um, uh, um, oh yeah. yeah, I'm blanking on it. What's
0: Guant- the name? Guantanamo of it? Bay.
1: Thank you, Guantanamo uh, Bay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, there, there's lots of revelations, and then also like black sites. We we found out that in order to get certain information, uh, the military was using torture. Uh, as one of the methods and the CIA was also participating in torture or as Obama put it, you know, we tortured some folks. Um, But uh, so this movie I think is engaging in that conversation does torture. Is it justified if it produces information that saves the day? And then that the TV show uh, 24 was a big kind of, some people called it propaganda because it explored the idea of every single time he had a problem, he could grab somebody and, you know, start making cuts and electric, you know, electrocute them and, until they started talking. Um, and then you talk to, to people who uh, I've, I've seen interviews with people who are real interrogators and they take the position that, you know, with interrogation, you want to make friends with them and get them into even a false sense of trust. That's much more effective. Torture gives you unreliable information and it ends up cause, and then it's people who engage in torture aren't doing it because they're trying to solve a problem. They're engaging in torture because they're working through their inner demons and indulging certain inner demons. They want to punish. They don't want the truth. They're using the search for truth as a pretext to punish. And in the case of Keller, 100%, I believe he is working, you know, what Villeneuve is saying is that uh, he's dealing with the betrayal of his father committing suicide and all the guilt and all the complex feelings, he's taking it out uh, on Alex Jones and all his suspicions go straight to, he's absolutely guilty. He's not wrong that Alex Jones is involved, but you can't say Alex Jones is guilty because he doesn't have the mental capacity to be guilty, uh, which Keller doesn't understand. Um, so in that sense, it does go back to this really frustrating claim is that yeah can we talk about how religion plays into this at all like um yeah. are you comfortable talking about yeah, that I
0: think, yeah i think it's um it's super um important i was my dad's air force based i was raised methodist i'm more of a bit of everything now not i'm not one thing um but i i grew up you know um in more of a religious background so oh, like and got, then i've got Irish Catholic background on, um, Oh,
1: okay. Sorry. You cut out for just a second.
0: Yeah. Um, my, um, my dad's side of the family is Methodist. And then my, my mom's side is, uh, Irish Catholic. So, um, and then my, my mom's dad was Southern Baptist. So I've got a lot of (laughs) different Christian (laughs) backgrounds, um, in my family. Um, I, uh, so I've, I, I can, um, relate to it or at least know that world a little bit um Mm -hmm. and find this this uh discussion especially with religion and morals and how it connects um very interesting for exploring these themes because um keller is the characters that identify as religious end up enacting the most evil right the darkest Mm -hmm. parts which would be keller and then um uh, Holly Jones, the, the aunt, um, are, are two of the most, um, involved. And then you have Loki who's not directly, and he has a Mason's ring. Um,
1: Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. Why do you, why do you think he had a Mason ring?
0: Um, I, I think he's more, um, he's more well-rounded, but he represents more of the virtues, which is interesting. And then Loki is his name which adds more contradictions, at least um, Loki being the trickster and not necessarily the good guy, God. Um, so it's it's interesting. Um, and then the idea of faith, right? When you lose, and that could be religious faith or that can be faith in humanity, right? That something really dark could take away your faith in humanity and make you capable of, of doing those really horrible uh, things, whether it's torture or, um, uh, I don't know, getting into what the, the Jones family did is it, it's its own thing. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And then I, well, the part I find really interesting, just getting back to the interrogation tactics is when Viola Davis's character comes in, uh, when Nancy, right. That's, uh, comes in, you have, this moment where she tries to be compassionate with him and you're like, oh, this might actually work. And if someone could be kind to him, maybe he would give them stuff eventually, right? Like if they had been nicer to uh, to Alex, maybe he would have voluntarily given it over information. It would have taken time, right? And mm-hmm. required a lot of patience um, to get through. And, and me personally, that's what, if I was in this situation, I'd want that, but she unties him. And what does he do? He breaks Lou Lass and he's, he's going to kill her with mm-hmm. the piece of the window. So there's also this argument being made for, um, and probably because he was tortured, right. He's going to react that way as, as most of us probably would in that situation. Um, mm-hmm. If we were him, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Like you,
1: you see a, you see a moment to try and cut, cut his way through and he goes for it. Yeah. It's understandable what you would do
0: um but from the audience perspective cuz we're we're on um Keller's and the family side it's mm-hmm. you're like you can't trust him he's slippery and and um yeah. there's something dark there but i don't know i'm kind of um and i think um Villeneuve is great at getting to those ambiguous areas and not really giving you an answer but leaving you with questions which i i i like you know, um, my background's in theater. So the, mm-hmm. the plays that lead to uh, those questions and in great films, too, um, mm-hmm. can be really frustrating to look at when there's truths on both sides that are dark, right, that the torture could be effective. But of course, we don't want to engage in that. But where is where is the right answer? Where is that line? And it's there isn't necessarily always a black and white, even though we want to We want there to be um i don't condone torture or and not (laughs) not pro that um at all but um but like what where there's flaws in the system where a bad guy say alex jones in this story was the guy where he can slip through and keep doing this that happens in in the real Mm -hmm. world and there are stories Mm of our justice system failing right um whether it's human error or uh, or just lack of evidence. Um, mm-hmm. and or mass, corruption too. Or corruption too. Um, yeah, flat out corruption and and dark forces from within. Um, yeah, so, and that's the diff- difficult thing about our world is it's it's not black and white. There's all this gray. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know, It's this is an interesting movie to kind of have to weigh those options, but I hope I'm more on the side of Loki of... You know, I'm definitely more on that side that there, we should be following the right thing but we do also have to listen to our instincts to those things and and react in the right amount of time because there's that element too. If you don't um, react in the right way, it's, you might have to pause for one second. Okay,
1: Yeah, <laughs> go for that. it. Okay, so we were, we were kind of talking about um, religion uh, and how this was exploring religion. Now, one of my... The thing that kind of lingered with me the more i dove into this the more i felt a little bit like the thing that felt like it wasn't resonating as truthful was this idea of the you know everything was kind of a little too clean and too easily explained and this idea of like um well now we know what her motives were because she monologued she did the villain monologue where she's like, you know, we were rebelling against God and we were, were trying to punish, you know, we were waging a war against God. And the interesting thing is, is like, so, you know, a full disclosure, I was raised very religious. Um, I'm no longer religious in the conventional sense. I'm, I'm, you know, an atheist, agnostic. I'm unpersuaded by the claims of God uh, for any religion Um, but also have a great deal of respect for other people's beliefs and religions as well. I I believe everybody needs to believe what they hold sacred and I respect that. Um, But when it comes down to, you know, my own convictions, I, you know, I'm, you know, I'm an atheist basically. Uh, I just hate the connotations that people associate with atheism. You know, it's not, I'm not, uh, I'm not convinced that there is no God. I'm just unconvinced whether there's a God or not. So,
0: yeah, true, true agnostic.
1: Sure. So actually we should talk about this because it's come up a few times in the podcast too. And uh, so I do say that I'm an agnostic and an atheist because I go back to the the original term. So Gnostic means the knowledge of the sacred, right? Gnosis is the knowledge of the sacred to be. uh, So if you know that there is a God, then you have Gnosis, So agnostic means you don't have knowledge of a God. And in that sense, unless you have seen God face to face, everyone is agnostic. Hmm. Uh, So in that sense, we're all agnostic because we don't know that there is a God. Unless, you know, there are people that claim to have uh, seen God with their own eyes and, you know, know, they know uh, in the terms of actual knowledge. And I can't speak to that because I don't, you know, uh, I don't. I can't speak for them and their knowledge or whatever, but I know for a fact that I have not seen God. So I'm an agnostic for, cause I don't know there's a God. And then theism is the belief or the conviction of a belief in a God. Now I don't have the belief either. I don't have the knowledge or the belief. So I am an agnostic and an atheist, um, which is d- different than I am a, a non-theist or an anti-theist anti-theists are convinced that there is no God. And I'm not in that position. I'm not convinced either way. There could be evidence tomorrow that suddenly reveals that there is a God. And I'm totally open to that. Uh, People that kind of set it up as like, well, there's a spectrum of belief. And I'm like, you know, then it gets into, I don't have to sit there and rationalize like, you know, a scale of one to 10, how much do you believe? It's just, I'm unpersuaded. So I take the position that I just, I don't know. And I'm not, I don't live my life with the conviction of it. Anyway, that's that aside. The, the, the character motivations of Holly Jones and her husband to wage war against God is this really strange motive that feels kind of inauthentic. Like, I understand people that would go believe in God, they lose a child to cancer, and they're like, I no longer believe in God. But they actively believe there's a God and they want to wage war against him, which kind of feeds into that kind of religious idea of, you know, it's this false belief that, well, there's no such thing as an atheist. It's just people who hate God. And, you know, being someone who's unpersuaded that there is a God, I don't hate God because I'm, I'm unpersuaded that it even exists. I don't hate something that doesn't exist. Um, and this movie kind of pushes the idea that real evil is, you know, this, this attack on God or rebellion against God. So in that sense, you could say, you know, is so is she satanic, which, you know, Satanists, Satanists have a full range. I can't speak for what their belief system is. But it still is in the ethos of a belief system. Like you believe there's a God and you believe there's a Satan and they're antagonistic toward each other. And I don't, you know, believe in either of those. I believe they're largely allegorical metaphors for good and evil, um, not literal people. And, um, so because of that, this idea of like her monologuing and saying we're waging war against God and we want to, steal souls away from God kind of turns it into this kind of weird caricature. Like that's when I kind of felt like, Oh, this whole thing is motivated by really weak lack of understanding of the psychological dynamics in Christians and, and real, like real belief. Like it, it's very rare that you would have somebody go through this trauma of losing a child and then be like, ha, I'm going to wage war on God. It's just a, it's a strange thing that doesn't resonate as true in my experience. Most, most Christians I know have, you know, uh, good hearts, good intentions, love their families and are trying to live a life of, of order. And, and this, this idea of like rebelling against God that doesn't make them satanic. It makes them just no longer believers. Um. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Um, especially when it comes to Holly Jones and the motives of the conspiracy.
0: Yeah, a weird i i like the way the i like the line to wage a war gets got sounds good um mm-hmm. and sounds really strong um just in terms of like a, a line right um yeah. but it gets kind of maybe could go into that more comic book you yeah. know um yep. or like ancient, mustache you know, twirling i yeah. defy you gods uh that's from juliet right um kind of kind of level but um and maybe it would have worked better if it was played more as we lost our son. And now I'm going to make other, other families feel that pain. And maybe that's mm-hmm. what they're saying. See that um, I
1: understand that I, I could believe in that kind of motive,
0: but then it's, but it's still such a, and there is something obviously very psychologically wrong with Holly Jones and and yeah. her husband, yeah. who's the dead guy in the basement. Um, mm-hmm. obviously to do these dark things and it's, and we, as people, I think, don't want to look at that stuff because it's so evil that we don't, we don't ever want to deal with the people that hurt children, right? Like it's a psychological mm-hmm. thing that we, it's very hard to look at because it should be right. Like it should be impossible to do, to inflict that kind level of, um, pain or harm on, on mm-hmm. children. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's a tricky thing, I think, as a a writer or as, um, as the actor playing the role too, even to find, um, I do think that in terms of a film and allegory and metaphor, having this, like involving the snakes and like, Mm -hmm. um, that it's getting that into kind of a, a, the evil, right. Um imagery that's naturally there from Bible and other, other sources is, um, is interesting and really evocative and, um, and primal, right. Those, those boxes that are regular, like storage tubs with bloody Mm -hmm. clothes and snakes. Like it's such an image that, um, disturbed me greatly when watching it the first time. And even the second time I was like, okay, I'm going to get around this, but that's, I know that was also a a bold choice. So I don't know, it's a tricky thing. And I don't know what I would have done differently because it is a a tough character to kind of um, rationalize. And I think there is a part that is psychologically broken where they, and they're, they got this whole maze thing from a book, um, yes. as well. So I don't know. Um, maybe it was yeah, I think with I think. them,
1: yeah, I, I think with especially when it comes to the character motives of the, of the villain, we already got a sense of like, we had that whole scene where she explained that their first dialed died of, or the first child died of cancer. And, yeah. uh, because of that, um, we already have enough sense to extrapolate. Oh, maybe this is why she's doing it. When she started, basically the moment she pulled out the gun, she felt like a caricature to me.
0: Hmm.
1: And yeah. it, it, to me, the most frustrating scene. I really love this movie. I think it's beautifully executed. I really resist a lot of the moral claims that it's making. Uh, but it. it But the moment where she pulls out the gun and he's, you know, he walks in, turns his back on her. He's like, I don't want to have to hurt you. And she pulls the gun out and it's like, dude, you're not doing the strategy correctly. Like turning your back on somebody that you're pretty convinced kidnapped your daughter and then giving her enough room that if she pulls a gun and then drinks the juice, like, no, like you're close enough that like, take a bullet. This is your daughter's life at stake. Take the bullet. The likelihood of her hitting you in the, you know, in a, in a fatal shot is very low. Do whatever you have to jump to the side and knock the gun out of the way. But this moment, I did not believe for a second that beefy, huge Wolverine is not going to be able to take on Holly Jones.
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. She's just sitting there with the gun, like giving him commands. And he's just like, Oh, right. Oh, right. Oh, right. I, I, I really struggled with that scene because I didn't believe that that guy who's willing to kidnap and torture and beat the shit out of these other people like would just sit there and take it and just take her orders. I think he would have been like, no, I'm going to take the bullet if it means getting my daughter. And then on top of that, he drinks the drink, which is like, dude, you already know it's her. Just jump at her. Throw the table. Do something. Don't go along with it. Cause you know that she's not like she has complete, you're giving her power. And of course she's going to drop you in a pit. Of course you're going you, to, she's going to drug you and poison you and then throw your, like why surrender that much agency? I did not believe that scene at all. And it felt very, if I don't know what happened where it, all the other scenes were really tense and beautifully composed. And then that one scene felt like it really unraveled for me. And it's that moment that I still think it comes back and pulls back. And you definitely persuaded me that, like Loki, was justified to go into the house and find her at just the right time. And the coincidence of like just catching her just in time uh, it was just great storytelling. It's, it keeps the the drama and the tension right. You know, it keeps you on the edge of your seat. But that moment where it's like throw the table at her and then knock the the gun out of her hand, like once you're surrendering that much agency, he's done. And I don't believe for a second that he would have done that. So that's that's my, my biggest frustration with the entire film. And then on top of that, I definitely would have – the religious themes are already in there. Like Villeneuve did such a beautiful job in baking it into the imagery and into the character development and into you know the little symbols and the mazes and all that stuff that if she has to sit there and explain we're waging war against God, I feel like that's when it, it got silly. Like that was the moment that was yeah. silly. I would just, I, I would have just said, don't have her explain anything. Like just, you know, I think she could have, she, she, I would have rewritten it a little bit as, you know, and I, I realize that there's a lot more going on here. It's, it's, it's easy to, you know, sit, you know, what, ten years after the movie came out, and say, well, this is what I would have done. But, you know, when I'm working with clients and when I'm working in a story team, these are the kind of questions we are talking about. Is it plausible? Would this character make these decisions? And I think if she has a conspiracy uh, that's been lasting for 15, 20 years with her husband, they would have all sorts of contingencies of how, if somebody gets on, you know, figures out, you know, what's going on, they would have all these ways of outmaneuvering people. And they're just standing there in their little cardigan with a gun. I'm not, yeah. I don't buy it. I just don't buy it. Well, um, and
0: it doesn't, Line up for uh for jover's for keller's character either that he went through all of these extremes including building a custom torture chamber for alex and then he's yeah. with the real woman who's responsible and he's not going to do anything it does it yeah. doesn't it doesn't flow with with everything else that we've we've set up that he would do everything for his daughter and then now of course building to a low point that works better but it could have mm-hmm. worked if he'd taken the bullet and then she injected him with something or some mm-hmm. way that he he got a, a different all is lost moment um, after that. Would have been more interesting too, probably. There is something interesting in him having to take the choice to weaken himself by drinking it. But I think you're right that would he, if this is the guy that prepares for natural disasters and is, I'm going to do everything to protect my family,
1: yeah. I guess
0: you could argue that, in that sense, he's, he thinks that by drinking it, he will be taken to where she is. I don't know. Um, but
1: have have you ever seen a movie called the vanishing?
0: Um, I'm trying to remember. I remember the title and I'm just having trouble remembering who's who's in it.
1: Um, so back in, in 1908, the original movie, the vanishing, it's a Dutch film. Um, and then it was later adapted, I think in 93, uh, with, um, Harrison, uh, not Harrison Ford. Um, Jeff Bridges is one of the characters, and I don't remember the rest of the cast. Um, but the the premise is um, this: this guy and his, I think, fiance or his girlfriend or his wife, they're driving somewhere. They stop at a random tourist stop, like at a gas station. He goes in, goes to use the bathroom. He comes out, and his girlfriend's missing, and he spends the next three years desperately trying to find her. And he's just, he can't figure out what happened. He's looked at every clue. He's obsessed over it. He it's destroying his life. And he, he's gotten to a point where he's like, all right, she's dead. I just need to know what happened to her. And he can't get peace. And then one day he gets a postcard that says, um, if you want to find out what happened to your girlfriend, um, come meet me. And then of course, what happens is he meets with a guy that's this professor, um, I'm going to go ahead and spoil it. So if you know, (laughs) okay. Uh, So the vanishing, this is a spoiler warning. Um, What he does is uh, he meets with a professor and the professor says, if you want to know what happened to your girlfriend, you have to drink this. And it's obviously going to knock you out. And he's like, you'll find out what happened to her. um, But you'll also pay the same price. So the question is, is, is it, you know, can you live with not knowing or is it so important for you to know, even though you can't do anything about it, all you need to know, you'll just find out what happened to her. And so, of course, the the protagonist decides to go ahead and drink it. He passes out and then he wakes up uh, underground inside the shallow pit uh, where he's basically being tortured to death until he dies. And that's the end. It's a really grim movie. super grim. <laughs> yeah. And, um So it was originally a Dutch film and then adapted to an American version. And, you know, when I was watching this, it, it, I saw a lot of, uh, it was definitely influenced by it. Like that plot of here, you got to drink this if you want to know where your daughter is Uh, to the point where it's, it invoked a lot of the similar things. I don't think it's like a ripoff or anything like that. I think it's, it's uh, definitely pulling from different plot points that played into it. What I think the vanishing did really effectively is it presented the proposition of how important is it for you to know the truth? But because a prisoner is all about like, he wants the girl, the children to survive. Um, it, it gives it kind of a limited, there's no time to negotiate. He doesn't sit there and like wonder, would I take the drink or not? He takes the drink immediately. He's like, if this is what I need to do to save my daughter, I'll do it. But I'm like, well, take the bullet then take the bullet, like let her yeah. shoot at you. And then, uh, take her out. You could def- you could fall on her and break her and then go save your daughter. Um, yeah. so it, it, a lot of my, f- uh, and let me, let me reinstate cause I'm kind of shitting on the movie a little bit. It's mostly just that little scene that feels like it doesn't fit in the rest of the movie. Cause the rest of the movie is incredibly compelling. It's really well directed. The cast is phenomenal. And the the writing is really solid all the way through. It's just that one moment that I, I really struggle with, and it and it ties into like I don't quite buy the religious motives, you know. Are you know are they satanists? Are they theists? or they you know they're deeply believing God? They just hate him, you know. It's it's all these kind of like uh, things that don't resonate as true, um. And that's probably at the at the core of my criticism. What are, what are your thoughts like? after kind of sitting down and analyzing it and peeling it apart, does it have the same power as it does? Do you think it's a, uh, an exploration or do you think it's a justification for criticism or for torture?
0: So for me, it's more of an, an exploration of the question of what does it take? I, I don't think it's necessarily, um, I, I think the film and how it shows the brutality of torture, it's definitely not 100% pro torture. But I mm-hmm. think there is a, that moral gray area of what is needed to get the truth in those moments. And if we have to act quickly and more of question, I think to us as the audience of what would you do and would you mm-hmm. go to this extreme um, yeah. and, and kind of questioning, maybe I should be working. Like I, I would hope I would work with law enforcement and, and that they would do everything in their power. Um, yeah. And but it, it you know not giving us an answer, making us question and think about what um, the the problems we have um, in in both areas of law enforcement being limited, and then having to follow their process. Which we need those laws, we need those rules mm-hmm. for most cases. There's just every now and then there's one where things slip through, um, mm-hmm. and. And it's difficult. We want to protect our children. Um, We don't want to live in a world where these things happen, but obviously they do. Um, And how do we deal with that? How do we reconcile that? Um, So I I think it is an interesting exploration of, um, of those questions. And I hope that we're more like Loki. Um, And I, I do think Loki, there's a reason why, why I don't think it's a full in on um, pro, you know, that torture and the extreme methods are the right thing is that Keller doesn't win. He ends up in the pit and Loki, by following his instincts and doing things the right way, ends up getting her. And it is by luck. So, but, but-, but here's
1: the thing. If if Keller didn't do what he did, Loki doesn't find the girl in time to save her. Right. And that's <laughs> so that's, that's the part that really... The thing it is is that might kind of be true. It might be speaking to the truth of random chance. The problem is, is that if you're looking at the film as either advocating rhetoric or propaganda, then it's suggesting that, well, thank God he tortured that poor innocent person or they wouldn't have saved the little girl's lives, which is a horrible thing for a film to say. Um, But yeah, just the fact that you and I are, are sitting here kind of peeling it apart is part of you know, the product of this film and that's, that's good. It's productive. Um, and it's, you know, we all have to kind of reconcile that. The, the thing I love the most about this movie is it really makes you feel and ask the question, would you go to these extremes? Would you do this? And Hugh Jackman is so compelling and the, the psychological dynamics of the wife saying you're supposed to protect us and all of those different elements contributing, like you totally believe that Keller would make these decisions and feel justified. So in the end, he still won. He still saved his, Oh, it's for sound. He still saved his daughter, but the price of that was by torturing somebody and then being stuck in a pit and likely spending years in prison. So that's the price of saving his daughter. So in that sense, it's like, eh, the, the, and that the truth of it is, is I wouldn't have liked a movie that, you know, it, it say say for example, it's a movie where he tortures him and it's completely the wrong guy, and it doesn't in any way contribute to saving his daughter, and then he goes off to prison anyway. That would be that would also be a very moral condemnation of it. It would agree with my personal values. But honestly, it's not a very satisfying movie either. Like that's, that's not as compelling either. Cause it's just saying, you know, torture is bad. We all agree that torture is bad, or at least you and I agree that torture is bad. So, and that's what the script does so well. And what Villeneuve really explores is that visceral question of, we know it's wrong, but are there things that would, you know, the, the, the job of stories and artists is to explore these moral extremes so that in the real world, we don't have to, we can play out these scenarios and see like this didn't pay off. But in this case, the torture did pay off and that revolts me. It it disturbs me, which doesn't make it a bad movie. It just makes it a movie that deeply disturbs me.
0: Yeah. It is. It is. It's disturbing on a lot of different levels. Um. Yeah. And I, yeah, I struggle with that too. And and with Sicario as well. And Sicario hits super hard too. Um, Yeah. Just in in dealing with, you know, the issues of everything that's going on in Mexico and the U S and there's no answer and you're left with that. And like these horrible things that happen to people who are just trying to live Um, and there's no answer. And you're like, Ah, uh, I, but I don't want that. There's no answer. I want, <laughs> I want there to be a way out of this. Um, but yeah, after this, I, also, I need like a
1: Gilmore Girls palette cleanser. <laughs>
0: yeah, no, same, same here. Maybe I'll go watch some, you know, like Love Actually or some Christmas movie. <laughs> it's,
1: yeah, yeah it's exactly.
0: That's nice. all about the good, good side of humanity. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, now you you watch this with uh with Leo, your husband was he what was kind of your take like you know between like a married couple and like watching it together was it like uh what was that that kind of like feeling of like you know as 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 a wife and uh does that affect like how does that play into the way you interpret the movie
0: um i think because we when we both watched it the first time we were uh we were separate. And then, cause I, I didn't see it right when it came out. I wanted to, but I, I waited for some reason. I think, um, I was kind of busy at that time, but, um, and I don't remember why, but, um, we had talked about it separately and watched it the first time. Um, and at first I, I think it was so intense that I wasn't sure if I liked it or not. I liked the performances and, um, the way the story moved, but there, I was left with that, And maybe that's still a little bit where I'm, I'm at where, um, but I really enjoy the storytelling um, Mm -hmm. and, um, and the performances a lot. And I think he is too. Um, But it it is a thing of questioning of if, if we had a child and this happened, how far would you go? I wouldn't. Like, do you feel like, like
1: being married, does that change the way you interpret the movie at all?
0: um we weren't married we were still i think dating at the point where we saw it separately mm-hmm. um but seeing watching it together i think it does um i think in some ways yeah it makes it feel like oh this is more where it's closer to maybe in a few years we will have a kid and then a few <laughs> years later this could what if the situation happened um, oh, yeah so that does yeah. come come into play where it, it starts to be Whereas you're watching when you're younger, you're watching this and, and, and feeling, well, I don't have kids, but if I did what I, where it starts to become more real of an actual possibility. um, Yeah. I would, I would hope that even if I was questioning a Alex Jones type, I would be more like Viola Davis in the first part of it before the torturing and hope that that would get somewhere and then work with law enforcement. But I don't know. It's difficult. And I thought it was interesting that um, I'm blanking on the character's name, the wife of Keller, uh, Mrs. Dover. um, Grace. Grace. Yes. That her immediate response is just the denial of, of they, they just ran away. They were happy. This couldn't happen. And then she she just checked out. out. Yeah. And that kind of, that bugged me a lot the first mm-hmm. time I watched it, even though obviously it has its basis, but I was like, why aren't you doing anything? Your child's missing. Like it really mm-hmm. frustrated me that, um, cause I, I think as a mother, I'd be more protective, a little bit more like the Viola Davis character, but, yeah. and that's one criticism too, is I wish that Viola Davis, Nancy gets involved, but I. I also would like to see a film where she is more, um, more like her character and widows are more actively involved in, um, in solving it. But I also know that that's not this story. Um,
1: yeah. Why do you think they, they made that great. choice to have, uh, have grace kind of shut down the way she did?
0: I Cause it, it is it grounded
1: in reality. Some, some people do yeah, deal with this kind of trauma through just like they emotionally shut down. Well, our to,
0: they have to, it's a, it's a, um, And I, I have some personal experience with trauma and disassociation. Cause so I can say that like, it's incredibly frustrating when you look back on it, but your body does it to protect you because it's too intense that you have no other option. So it's not a, a conscious, um, obviously it's not conscious. It's just your body's way of protecting your nervous system. Can't process, can't handle what's happening. So, um, I thought it was good that they do put it in and it also adds, um, it does work for the story too, that it allows Dover to have more flexibility, Keller to go and do the things he's doing. If she was more with it, she would be more like Nancy and where are you and what's going on. And she does a little bit, but, um, but she's kind of checked out, which allows him to, to be able to take things to the extreme, but it also, I'm um, oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: I also think it does. It, it's a powerful motivating factor, in Keller's value system and his arc because he very much wanted to like, he chose a, he chose a partner uh, that uh, him being a protective uh, father figure is an important part of their relationship and him failing like this this feels like him failing. And that moment where she like sticks in and says, you're supposed to protect us. How could you let this happen is just, you, you get, and it's perfectly timed when it happens. It's part of what motivates him to take that extreme thing. Like, you know, as, as husbands, we tend to, a lot of our value and self-worth comes from uh, the way our wife sees us, you know, like the, the, the value that they give us, we, we draw validation from that. And, you know, that feeling of like, Oh, I failed her. And then for her to say the words, yeah, that's going to push him to an extreme. So I, I think is a brilliant choice in what would push Keller to do what he did. And that's, it's part of the things where it's like, you know, I don't think it needs it at all, but it would have been interesting to see what Loki, We didn't get any sense of his personal life. Uh, in fact, it mm-hmm. kind of seems like he's just, I'm a detective and that's all I am. And that's fine. Yeah, I think that works for the story. Uh, it would have been interesting to see the way he has, uh, like what, how he draws validation from partnership or if he's deliberately like avoiding partnership, like that opening shot of him in the diner alone tells us a lot. He's, you know, it's that trucking shot. It's Thanksgiving. He's by himself. He doesn't have family. Um, so he is somebody who is a obsessive, uh, person, uh, isolated lone wolf. It does tell us a lot about him. Um, but it also makes him kind of a a character versus someone that I identify with, you know, he's, he's such an extreme character uh, of that type. Whereas Keller is somebody that I'm able to identify with more because, you know, he's, he's vulnerable and open and much more complex emotional dynamics, psychological dynamics too. Um, Cool. Well, that, that was really interesting. Do you you have any other aspects that you wanted to cover on, on prisoners?
0: (laughs) I mean, the, the idea of the maze is interesting. Um, I kind of would have loved like a bigger twist. I don't know that I really needed it, but um, other than them just drawing mazes, like if there was Mm -hmm. a maze underneath or something, but that would have gotten into something else, but that's just me. Um, I love the way Gyllenhaal
1: delivered that line during the interrogation they're like, yeah, he's just drawing a bunch of mazes. He's like, yeah, he's into mazes. <laughs> like it's so, yeah. like, for him, it's like, just let him draw. Like he's in mazes. This is going to help us. You know, I love that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And um, it's interesting because in the end, the mazes were not a, you know, they were a metaphor about the psychological states of paranoia and how, you know, Uh, it's called prisoners because they're all kind of in their psychological prisons. They're all trapped within the barriers of their own maze that they're not able to navigate in this case, specifically moral prisons that they're trapping themselves in. um, Which I I think is really interesting, but um, yeah. What, what were your thoughts? Why, why put so much emphasis on mazes?
0: Um, Well, and it's even in the uh, it's in the, O of the font. uh, Yeah. uh, which again could be just part of the marketing of it It looks cool. And it gives you, it's like, Oh, what's this, what's this about? Um, and I don't know. I, I almost felt like I, I wanted more with it. I don't know exactly what that would be. Um, uh, but yeah, it
1: felt like they were kind of slowly unraveling this big conspiracy theory. And there's like, you know, this big overarching underground conspiracy network of, kids being kidnapped and then it ended up just being this old bitter Christian couple that are, you know, kidnapping kids. And they only, it's still a conspiracy between two people. Uh, and then the, the kids they're kidnapping, they draw them into conspiracy through abuse and psychological manipulation, but it's not some big overarching conspiracy. It's, it's, that's part of what like, it was such a clean, neat wrap up that it's like, Oh, this explains everything. And I think, you know, it's, it's part of, like, if I compared this to, like, a David Fincher movie, like Zodiac, it starts to – it implies that there's so much more to this, that, and it's not necessarily a clean conspiracy. It, it's a human condition of, of the dark side that we can only begin to fathom, and this insight into the investigation is just scratching the the leaves off of the top of the surface. So – yeah. That's, that's really interesting. It's, it's great visualization of it too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, there's a lot there. So I thought it would, it would be fun to unpack and uh, unpack. And it is really interesting to see, um, a, a two-hander that there are, uh, two, um, two protagonists, I think is, um, it's not something we see all that frequently. And I think it's good to have as an example, once you know of, of knowing story structure and seeing how it can work and how you can play with the, the rules to fit your, your story and what themes might, might give, um, the reason, uh, a reason why you might want to explore a story in this way. Um, so I think it's a, it's a cool example to, to look at.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Cool. Uh, well, shall we wrap it up?
0: Yeah. Sounds good. It's a heavy one. So
1: (laughs) it's a very heavy one. In fact, it was really hard for me to rewatch it. Uh, yeah, I'm in, I'm in a totally different psychological state. Like I think the, yeah. And, and the, the stakes felt, felt a lot more heavy, a lot more present. And, um, that said, it's really effective. It's an effectively done movie. It's the scripting. Again, I only have an issues with really just that one scene. The rest of it I think is really phenomenally structured and I think Villeneuve is so good at immersing us and making us feel like this is happening to us that we're biting our nails for the entire movie. So it's, you know, it's not just Alex Jones that's being tortured. It's the audience.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Cool. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's kind of our deep dive into prisoners, uh, Kate, thank you so much for joining me in this conversation. You you really brought a lot and you actually changed the way I was thinking about the movie. I was kind of feeling very frustrated with that because I was it just hooked in my brain. Like he wouldn't have done that. I don't believe for a second that he would have done that, but you know, you changed my mind. So good job. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, absolutely. Do, do you want to remind the audience uh, how they can get in touch with you and uh, how to check out some of your stuff?
0: Sure. Um, right now the best way is just, just through Instagram, um, at, at Kate the Canon um, on Instagram and, um, yeah. And then Darius and I might have some projects coming up soon. We've got a feature that we're hoping to, to get started on soon. Um, so yeah, but Instagram for now is, is the best place.
1: Awesome. Is that an indie feature
0: or? Yes. Yes, it will be. Okay. Unless that's something fantastic.
1: changes. But <laughs> gotcha. So right now the plan is in the distribution deal or anything, or you probably can't talk about that.
0: I uh, can't really say much right now, but I, I think the idea is to um, Darius is focused on, on, um, on kind of more of this um, DIY do it yourself and yeah. just to not hold that's yourself back from making the films you want to make.
1: Of awesome. course. if you can make I love something bigger,
0: that. bigger. <laughs> But yeah. just so that you stay a filmmaker, not just, um, you know, screenwriting is amazing. But but mm-hmm. I think a lot of us get into this because we want to see our movies be made. And mm-hmm. it can be hard if you're waiting. So I, I like his approach that um, definitely have the back pocket ideas ready to go for those bigger opportunities. But also, um, it's not a bad idea to have some passion projects that you can make on your own. Um, yeah. It's just yeah. nice to have to that
1: experience so yeah i agree with that i i really believe like we the, the future of filmmaking and i think the, the most important thing is a combination of independent film and studio films i think we need both to keep the conversation it's the independent films that lead the experimentation that lead the innovation so like like things that you and darius are doing is so important for the craft and it's so important for the art of storytelling So cool. Thanks so much. Definitely go and check out Kate's stuff. Uh, She's amazing, incredibly talented, as you can see for yourself, very brilliant. Um, And then also be sure to check out Story by Numbers, which is available at Cinematicor.com and be sure to enroll in that story structure intensive. Thanks so much for watching. I hope you enjoyed this presentation of uh, Prisoners. Uh, have a great week. You've got a story inside you—a screenplay no one has ever thought of, a novel you've been rolling around inside your coconut for years. Maybe you wrote a few pages and stalled out. Maybe you even wrote a whole draft, but don't feel confident it's any good. Or maybe you've been writing draft after draft after draft and slamming into writer's blocks or dead ends or wandering into the weeds. Maybe you just have a few scenes centered around some dope high concept, but you don't know how to develop a character, much less construct a plot that would generate a character arc. Maybe all you have is some spark of an idea, just a simple desire to write a story. This book is for you. Story by Numbers is a step-by-step process. It gives you the tools to construct a plot that fleshes out your story with characters so real, so compelling, so multi-dimensional, you'll begin to wonder if you're possessed. Story by Numbers is composed of three parts. Part 1 gives you an overview of the four-act structure, 24 plot points, 8 sequences. Part 2 is a 35-question examination of your story that will guide you through developing and outlining your novel or screenplay into the four-act template. Part 3, well, that's just next-level dope shit. This isn't just another book on theory. Story by Numbers is a diagnostic toolkit for developing and fine-tuning your story. You'll also want to pick up the Story by Numbers Workbook. For each story you're writing, you'll need a journal to organize your ideas. The Story by Numbers Workbook is a companion notebook that walks you through the process as you outline your story and guide you through each phase of development, from constructing your protagonist's internal drive to plotting conflicts that expose character to composing scenes that drive compelling stories. By the time you've completed your story by number workbook, you'll be ready to finish your manuscript. Whenever you ask a writer what it takes to write a good story, they usually say there are no rules if you want to know what they really think. Ask them about a novel or movie they hate. Immediately they'll unload a litany of do's and don'ts so specific, so precise, you'd think they're citing commandments. We all know following a formula is what turns stories into zombified, hacky imitations of better stories. You don't want a formula. You want a process. A method composed of practical principles that breathe life into your concept. You don't want some bullshit magical key. You just want to know what works and what doesn't. Does your story resonate or not? Everyone knows there are no rules for writing a great story. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, here are the rules. Story by numbers. Write more, better, faster. Dober.